And good morning, everyone, or good evening, or good afternoon, depending on where you are on this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn when, well, when we cover the world and the solar system and all that lies beyond, because the mainstream well, it used to be they're not doing it, but there lately there's an awful lot of interesting things going on. Um, next week we're going to talk about the uh, you know the imminent UFO disclosures because there have been some Pentagon leaks, more leaks. Um, there is a major story in the New Yorker about how the Pentagon has decided to finally kind of admit that there's something to the UFO phenomenon after you know, 70, 80 years. Um, so we're going to be moving in in that direction next weekend. But tonight we're going to be grappling with something that is truly extraordinarily intriguing and is almost ineffable. And that is who really runs the world? Or <clears throat> if you watch the news, is anybody running it? Because there's an awful lot of weird stuff going on and a lot of it is directly contradictory and at odds with each other and its other and whatever other. And so um, we're going to try to uh, open some doors and to pry open some secrets. And we'll get to that momentarily. Um, <clears throat> last night, as you know, we discussed another episode in the unfolding chapter, what the heck is on Mars and what does NASA and JPL really know about it? Well, <clears throat> in the interim, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, has now been appointed to be head of the Space Council, the National Space Council, which was begun. Um, I, I, I saw the story, which we have linked there to the New York Post, uh, was sent to me by one of our correspondents. But they have a major mistake. They seem to think that the Space Council was started by um, uh, George Bush, uh, uh, you know, uh, George W. Bush's father. It was not was actually begun by John Kennedy. And because we were losing in every direction to the Russians during the uh, era of the Cold War and the Soviet Union, um, <clears throat> he turned to his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, and he basically wrote him a memo, putting him in charge of space activity, space policy, and the National Space Council. And so it goes back to JFK, course uh vice president harris will be the first woman to hold the position and she's the first woman to be vice president and it's going to be very intriguing to see um what directions her chairmanship of the council uh takes because we are we are at the precipice of some very interesting things as you know if you've been listening to the show tonight still the chinese are orbiting mars waiting waiting for something we don't know what the united arab emirates has a spacecraft orbiting mars um, they're busily studying the martian atmosphere which if you've been following our work over the last several weeks you know there's some major contentious questions about um, the martian atmosphere has nasa been telling us everything it knows about the martian atmosphere and why should that bother any of us and as uh, as we will get into as we go through the morning, is it part of a larger set of, <clears throat> shall we say, uh, stories as opposed to facts 
that are shaping a planet for people who are increasingly um, asking better and better questions. Also, live last night, toward the end of the show, if you were listening, you heard us cover the live splashdown of the um, uh, Dragon Resilience uh, spacecraft uh, with Crew-1, the first commercial crew in the history of American spaceflight. Up until now, all manned missions, and they have been manned missions, uh, have been manned by men. <laughs> and most of them, you know, U.S. military officers under the aegis of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, the National Space Agency. Well, as of uh, November <clears throat> last last year, the first crew to uh, inhabit the U.S. space station, the ISIS space station, the International Space Station, um, were carried into orbit and rendezvoused and docked and came aboard by, via a commercial spacecraft that was not owned, is not owned by the U.S. government. <clears throat> In fact, it's owned by a company called SpaceX, which is run by a very interesting guy named Elon Musk. A uh, name that has been mentioned on this program many, many times. Well, last night, after six months in orbit and breaking the record of Skylab back in uh, 19, uh, the, the mid-1970s, 75, I believe, um, the uh, SpaceX spacecraft, the Dragon spacecraft uh, resilient, landed successfully in the pre-dawn hours in a gorgeous moonlight night with seas a few inches in height. The Gulf of Mexico was like glass, if you saw any of the video. And they landed toward the end of our program, so we went to uh, uh, Mission Control Live, and we heard some of the call-outs as they were descending to the ocean on the parachutes, and they actually splashed down, and then the boats the private fleet, not the, uh, you know, half the U.S. Navy, which used to go out and recover American spacecraft in the, quote, good old days, uh, went out to pick them up. And within an hour, they were on the ship and they were undergoing medical checks. They were in excellent condition. And so the first crew ferried to and from space by a commercial spacecraft, like a space airline, um, successfully completed its six-month mission, breaking some interesting records, including the one that had stood for 53 years. This was the first mission since Apollo 8, which was my inaugural mission with Cronkite and CBS as their science advisor, uh, to land at night. Uh, we had not landed a human-crewed spacecraft for 53 years until last night in the enterprising and entrepreneurial spirit of Musk and SpaceX. So we're standing on the threshold of some very interesting new frontiers, which takes me to item number three. By the way, if you want to follow along, um, you who are new to the show, uh, you're listening obviously on a device. Well, that device is really a computer. Even if it's called a phone, it's really a little computer with, by the way, more computing power than all the spacecraft in, um, in U.S. space history, just so you know what you're holding in your hand. And that phone can actually tap into the Internet, and you can find our home homepage uh, for The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, look for that URL, theothersideofmidnight.com, 
Once you get there, you will click on tonight's banner, uh, which has dark, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Mirabello featured prominently uh, against a backdrop of a very Masonic uh, board, which we'll talk about later in the morning. Click on that. That will take you to his guest page for Sunday, May 2nd. And right under there, you will see uh, fast links to my items and Dr. Mirabello's items. Click on my items. That takes you down to my section of radio with pictures. Item number three. I don't know what it is about Musk. Again, reflecting back on what we just talked about in terms of the history he's making and the extraordinary leaps forward for American space efforts. Last night, remember, we talked about how he had been awarded the contract to develop the lunar lander for the Artemis program, and no sooner had NASA awarded him the contract, but he is now being sued by the two companies uh, that did not get the contract. Uh, There's something about Musk. Well, next Saturday, a week from last night, uh, Elon Musk is going to host Saturday Night Live. I know that's a stretch. I'm, I'm you know, uh, I've watched him over the years. Uh, Musk does not have, shall we say, the crispest sense of humor of any billionaires that you might come across. So this is going to be interesting at several different levels. What I find kind of bizarre is that no sooner was it announced that he was going to uh, uh, host the show, but there were rumors spread all over, you know, social media, Twitter being first and foremost, that the cast of uh, Saturday Night Live was not going to appear with him, that they were mutinying, that they were on strike. That, And then there were these bizarre Twitter uh, thingies. Um, he apparently put out a tweet which said something uh, – actually, I can get it – call it up here um, – He said, um, throwing out some skit ideas for SNL, what should I do? And Chris Redd, who was one of the um, uh, participants in Saturday Night Live, said, first, I'd call them EM sketches. And then another one said, um, this is Mrs. Betty Bowers. How about a skit where a selfish billionaire has a tantrum and makes a showy to do about moving his factory to another state but that new state is so dysfunctional, it has a third world power grid and runs out of electricity to run his factories and cars. That would be hilarious. Um, Safe Mars <clears throat> writes, juggling some chainsaws while being on fire usually does the trick. And it kind of went on like that. What is it about Musk that attracts this vitriol? This, I mean, here's a billionaire who's basically putting his money where his mouth is. I mean, do you know any other billionaires that are investing essentially 100% of what they're making back into a stunning leap forward for all of humanity? I mean, look what he's done for reusable primitive uh, rocket-type spacecraft and propulsion systems. He's so dramatically lowering the price that at some point in the not-too-distant future, we are going to be able to have, courtesy of Musk, real tourist traffic between Earth and low Earth orbit and back again. He already is going to take a crew of eight average people, um, don't quite know where they're going to be drawn from, by way of uh, one of his friends who was a Japanese billionaire, on a circuit around the moon in a couple, three years in the uh, 
Starship, which is undergoing prototype tests there on the coast of uh, Texas. I mean, this guy single-handedly done extraordinary advances for space and, as you know, my proclivities for essentially the future of humankind because without space, we're a closed system and closed systems inevitably wind up dying. So I really don't understand why he is such a target because he's doing so many important things. I mean, look at the whole idea of electric cars. They've been toys up until now. Elon Musk has made electric cars mainstream to where all the big car companies, Japan, you know, Honda, um, Detroit, all the places, Germany, where cars are made, all the high-end luxury vehicles now, all are going to come with electric components because of the competition provided by Musk and uh, Tesla. Again, I don't quite get this incredible antipathy unless it can be put down to something as simple and stupid as jealousy, maybe. And we're not even going to go to the subject of girlfriends and all that. Anyway, um, so next weekend, mark it on your calendar. Before this show comes on the air at 10 o'clock Mountain Time, you will have had a chance to uh, look at... um, Elon Musk hosting Saturday Night Live. And it should be kind of intriguing. Item number four, speaking of intriguing, item number four. Remember, we have been discussing now for many, many weeks the existence uh, via the unmanned NASA Perseverance mission to Mars of this extraordinary 30-mile-wide, 7-mile-high, ancient mega-structure, a glass dome, now in very sad condition, but still with enough matter left, enough mass left, enough glass left, so that it produces very peculiar optical effects given the number of pictures that the Perseverance rover has been taking and um, the ways that you can interpret the reflections and scattering and refractions that should not be present uh, over the Jezero crater unless there is something like a glass structure which interacts with light on very predictable ways. One of the ways it has interacted with the light, we saw this during the entry and landing of Percy, was that as you looked at those look-down images from both the black and white nav camera and what I call the color GoPro camera, you saw this bizarre glint reflecting back up from the surface. And as the spacecraft fell to the surface to be released from the tethers and and the sky crane, um, and it got closer to the ground, this incredibly interesting glint, this glare in in the images of two separate cameras moved across the surface, which was a dead giveaway that it wasn't some feature, some bright patch of reflectivity or what they call albedo but in fact it was a backscatter from the sun which was in those images literally behind the descending rover behind the cameras well now we've got some really amazing video i showed this last night but we had so many things to do and put in three hours we didn't really get a chance to talk about it um one of the reasons i've been very interested in the flight of ingenuity, the little helicopters, because it carries two cameras, 
a black and white nav camera and a color camera. And uh, I expected, based on the entry, descent, and landing video, which showed this incredible backscatter of sunlight bouncing off something, and it has to be glass, because we now know from looking close up at the surface that there's trillions of little tiny beads of something incredibly refractive that produces under magnification little rainbows, little prisms, and that is glass, that's silica, and it's not natural. It's not, you know, normally sand is not transparent. It's opaque, so you don't get this phenomenon with ordinary uh, silica in, uh, in earthly beach sand and stuff like that. Anyway, after the fourth flight of Ingenuity, which took place on Friday, uh, NASA has published again more imagery, including an animated GIF, which we put up as item number four in my section of radio pictures tonight. And what you can see is the camera looking down and you see the shadow of Ingenuity from the height of about 15 feet uh, moving across the surface from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame as the picture um, kind of morphs because not all the images were nested and there's a geometric thing because the camera is not stationary. Um, this depiction is stationary because you can do all kinds of things with images and video and computers so that you can fix your position and have the uh, shadow move across the landscape um, after you kind of get used to looking at the picture several times and it loops over and over again, look at Ingenuity's shadow. Look at the halo of brightness around that shadow, which as it moves from the top of the frame to the bottom of the frame gets brighter and more distinct as the angle between the sun the little helicopter and its shadow on the surface changes and becomes more in line because the images were shot uh, when they launched uh, Ingenuity at about 12.33 uh, from the surface of uh, Jezero Crater on Friday morning, um, local Martian time, 12.33, that's just about noon. So 12.33 means it was just afternoon which means the sun was not directly overhead. It was tilted at a slight angle um, to the vertical. And as this frame moves, as this GIF animation moves, you can see that the, the sun and the shadow congruent toward the bottom of the frame and this intense glow, this backscatter of the glass, the trillions of little shards of glass that have fallen from the dome to the surface and been mixed with the sands and dust of Mars is readily apparent in this one animation. Remember, I have a saying from out here in the great American Southwest, an Apache saying that it only takes one white crow to prove all crows aren't black. Well, if you wanted one picture to demonstrate the unique optical bizarreness of where the Perseverance rover and the Ingenuity helicopter have landed, this GIF animation showing this extraordinary glow around the 180 degree opposite shadow of little Ingenuity 
as it's flying above the Martian surface should be it. This is our white crow. And we don't have only one. We have many. And, of course, we're going to go through more of them and new evidence of what's really there next week, next uh, Saturday evening. So you've got two things to look forward to. You have that, and then just before the show comes on, you'll get to see Elon Musk, who wants to go to Mars, wants to take humans to Mars, wants to colonize Mars. You're going to see him do Saturday Night Live. And, of course, the question in my mind, does Elon Musk really know what is waiting for him there? We shall see. Finally, item number five. Um, many years ago, about 25 years ago, there was a book uh, published which was called, uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out the name here. It was, uh, uh, it was, it was called The Fourth Turning, um, published in 97 by Neil Howe and William Strauss. And it was a very controversial book because it proposed that America sees a turning, a political turning about every 20 years, a generation, as one generation displaces another. And this dynamic between the two creates a crisis every 80 years. And in that moment of crisis, new policies are put forward, are adopted by uh, uh, the mainstream, by voters, by um, uh, all kinds of other uh, in- individuals who are part of the American political process. And it, it basically predicted about 25 years ago that following a period of great social unrest in 2020, gosh, does that ring familiar? There would be uh, millennials taking the reins after decades of boomers you know, ruling the roost, and we would have the kind of social equivalent of the revolutions inaugurated by Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, at the height of the Great Depression back in the 1930s. And lo and behold, if you look at the political landscape, this seminal prediction based on this very interesting theory, which, by the way, was adopted uh, by people like Steve Bannon. He was very much a fan of this uh, book called The Fourth Turning. And as you know, in the early years of the Trump administration, he was a senior policy advisor uh, for the president. Um, it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this this theory, this model, uh, works its way through the American political system in the next several years because from totally independent evidence, as I look at where the Biden administration is and you know what's being proposed in Congress and the political reception, even among Republicans in the electorate, it seems to me that we are on the cusp of something as revolutionary and groundbreaking and transformative as the revolution in society that was ushered in by FDR all those many years ago. And that includes space. It may include an extraordinary arrangement with the Chinese. It may include some pioneering and transformative directions for the National Space Council headed up by President Biden's vice president, uh, Vice President Harris. And all of that presages the question, is there something behind the scenes other than the natural rhythm of generational politics 
and the um, fickleness of voters with trends in and trends out and economic forcing functions coming to the fore that create these these potentials for change. Is there something modulating the background? In other words, is there some kind of uh, controlling entities or controlling group which is uh, doing things behind the scenes? Which, of course, is a direct uh, intro to my guest of the evening, who is uh, dark, uh, dark, uh, Dr. Mark uh, Mirabello, who is a professor of history at a little college in the middle of Ohio, Shawnee State, I believe. He has a PhD from the University of Glasgow, an MA from the University of Virginia, and he got his BA from the University of Toledo in Ohio. Some years ago, he has been on every show you can imagine. He's written all kinds of books, including um, uh, some fiction. And without further ado, Dr. Mirabello, welcome to The Other Side of Midnight. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's a wonderful opportunity, and it's an honor. I want to spend the, the few minutes we have before the break at the bottom of the hour kind of trying to figure out how does an historian with a degree from, from Scotland, A, wind up in America teaching at a uh, you know, mainstream university in the middle of rural America, and B, how did you wind up getting involved with secret societies, which is not exactly the kind of academic uh, credential that trips off the tongue of most uh, colleges and universities anywhere in the world? In fact, it's rather curious. Uh, the fact that I teach at Shawnee State University has given me the opportunity to study the unusual, as I call it, the sort of frontiers and margins of human thought and civilization. And I've always viewed the unusual, uh, if you to use a biological metaphor, uh, most mutants are dead ends. They um, are born with some unusual trait, and they don't—they're not the future. They die out. But some mutants a rare number of mutants are the future and evolve into something higher. And that's how I view unusual thought, that right now the people winning the Nobel Prizes, the people getting all the recognition, uh, no one's really going to, most of us won't even, well, they won't be well known in 100 years, but somebody laboring in some obscure garret somewhere is, is coming up with the new ideas that will shape the future. Now, how I got from basically Toledo to Glass to Virginia to Glasgow and back, um, well, my very first book is called The Odin Brotherhood. It's about Norse, modern existence of a Norse religion, and they believe in destiny uh, woven by the Norns, these mysterious females. And there's, there's so many unusual things that occurred in my life. It's almost as if uh, things just happen in a rather curious way. Um, not to get too far afield, but my grandfather from an impoverished area at the time in the mountains of southern Italy, arrived in 1900, could not even read and write, but he established a stake here. I was successful. And then my father took it even farther, worked hard, became financially successful, created opportunities for me. Because I was first generation, I just attended the local university. I grew up in southern Michigan on the Ohio border, went to University of Toledo. 
Then I went to UVA because Virginia, because I thought, well, that's Thomas Jefferson School. And I got a really nice scholarship and went there. And mm. oddly enough, while there, clashed with a professor there. Uh, and that led me to think, well, maybe I should think about going elsewhere. And I applied overseas, mainly to Ireland, Britain, uh, and also Canada, not to you overseas. And I had some great success, uh, admitted to Oxford, for example, but Glasgow gave me a wonderful scholarship. I'll tell you what, hold it there, because we're at the bottom of the hour. This is too fascinating not to continue. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. He's an historian. He attended the university that Thomas Jefferson founded. His story is kind of like an American, typical, you know, American, arrives penniless, family, does well, education, and he gets to pursue his, his, his kind of, what they used to say, follow your bliss. In this case, the bliss is the unusual. How does the unusual become the usual? You're on the other side of midnight. We're going to find out. We shall return. I think has changed everything. 
I just really think it's important for people to be able to hear in depth and hear the kinds of discussions worldwide so that we can compare experience and really wake up and heal everyone. Welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this uh, Sunday, May 2nd, 2021. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello, and we were talking about how his uh, great his grandfather emigrated from Italy to this small town in Ohio, and the matriculation of his grandson um, from the uh, wilds of rural America to the University of Glasgow, back to the United States, where he is now an historian at Shawnee State University and dabbles in or does research in or is breaking ground in the rather arcane subject of secret societies. So, Mark, please uh, pick it up there. Yes. By the way, should I finish the bio story? Or yes, 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 by all means. Oh, very, very quickly, um, I probably ran that on too long, but Glasgow. That's why we have three hours. Huge. Yeah, okay. It gave me a huge scholarship, which had just been developed the year I applied for it. They had received a sum of money, and they awarded it to 12 overseas students. I was one of them. It was so huge. When I got my PhD, I had 20-some thousand dollars left over cash. Oh, my God. Uh, the stipend was just so generous. And then I returned to America after a short stint of one day where I was offered a job and. West Africa and was had a disaster there, but that's another story. And I returned to America, and um, this new university opens in Ohio. It started in 1987, Shawnee State University, and uh, I was the uh, I'm one of the founding fathers. I've taught my whole career there, and again because it's so small, we were able to write the rules. I was there writing them myself, and it gave me the opportunity to do the unusual. Now, how, now to the secret societies and the usual subjects that I deal with, Scotland altered my life. It's such, even though my PhD dissertation was on a relatively prosaic subject of the late 17th century dissenter conflicts in the Church of Scotland in, 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 in the 17th century at the very end during the Restoration period, while there, it's such a beautiful country and mysterious in nature. The sun never is very high in the sky, a lot of shadows, many hauntings. Uh, Glam's Castle, Castle, the most haunted place in, in Scotland, it's all there. And I encountered in a small bookstore in Leith, Scotland, which adjoins Edinburgh, this mysterious man. And I was looking at a book 
on the Brotherhood of the Rose Cross, which is a Christian secret society. And we engaged in the conversation and he made me, created these contacts with this Odin Brotherhood group. But also when I was in Scotland, I noticed that everyone that is significant is a Freemason. Um, ordinary policemen walking the beat may not be, but the chief of police, um, the top lawyers, the top physicians, the top people are all Freemason. And this led to this interest in secret societies. And my presently, I'm, I'm completing a book. Uh, the working title would be Secret Societies, A Skeleton Key. And I'm looking at these various groups and their influence. Now, I do know from previous communications with, with you and so forth, um, your interest is in um, power structure. Does, do these groups shall we say, exercise, are they the men behind the curtain to use the Wizard of Oz mm. image? Um, and that's technically called synarchy. The idea that the presidents and prime ministers are puppets and they're controlled by faceless people that the public is unaware of manipulating the system. Now, perhaps a, a better metaphor would be, again, quoting this time Charles Ford, most famous for the Book of the Damned. He died during the Depression, born in the 19th century. Wonderful writer. He said, the entire earth is a farm and we're livestock. <laughs> we are property, he said, of somebody yes. upstairs. Yes. And by the way, it seems to work that way. If you think of, now when people hear synarchy and control behind the scenes, the farmer doesn't really have to control the movement of every sheep every time all the time uh, he uses a dog to control the flock and also he uses what's called a merryweather which is a castrated ram to control the flock and oddly enough by the way when when farmers herd animals it's rather curious it's always females and castrated males and they keep a few males for breeding purposes, but the rest are castrated. That's where the veal industry comes from. People don't realize why are we torturing calves? It's because these are the males that no one's going to raise to adulthood. So we kill them, raise them in boxes, feed them milk only, and then kill them for especially tender meat. But the important point is, is to control the world. You don't have to control it constantly. You simply make certain that the general direction of the flock is in the correct direction. And if on occasion, one of the sheep wanders outside the fold, uh, you, you slap him down or perhaps even butcher him or shear him or make certain he's punished in some level. And I think if groups are controlling the system, again, it's not a world dictator somewhere ordering day-to-day uh, -day what is going to occur. It's simply manipulating uh, the economy, the media, the education system, and so forth to get a general direction. And now, why would they be doing this? Uh, and here I'll plagiarize George Orwell. Mm. Oh, by the way, um, um, the idea here is um, that the elites, these, these hidden people in hidden groups, are intentionally, perhaps, well, and let me also interject here to, the, to your audience. Um, we're dealing with beliefs here, and beliefs can have a huge influence on history, 
uh, it, they may not be true, but they still have an influence on history because people believe them. In the 19th century, there was a Chinese man who claimed to be the younger brother of Jesus. He started a religious movement that led to the deaths of millions of people. So again, even if a belief is not true, it can have influence. Well, we, back- we, 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 Mark, we have, we have examples right in our own midst. I mean, the last election, you know, the president starts claiming that his, his election was stolen. And most of his electorate, most of the people voting for Trump believe that the election was stolen. And there isn't a shred of evidence, you know, overwhelming evidence to the contrary, including Republicans and Democrats and checks and balances and all kinds, you know, hand counting of votes in, several, in a couple, three states several times. The overwhelming preponderance of the evidence is that Trump is not correct. His election was not stolen. But there's a huge part of the body politic which is believing him based on nothing but belief. Well, actually, I'm going to make it very clear here. What I'm going to say next is not to support Trump or not to support Biden. But I'll make it very clear as a historian, in fact, uh, elections are routinely rigged. Now, uh, let me make it clear. I was going to say, I think you have to define what you mean by rigged. Yes. Yes. The reason no one is ever prosecuted is because both parties have been doing it for years. We have, um, but see, it's impossible to prove because the nature now, especially with electronic voting and also with the way ballots are counted, in the, 19, in the 1972 election, my older sister was a volunteer in Toledo, Ohio, and they, she was a college student, and they loaded bags of ballots into her car, thousands of votes, and a 19-year-old, whatever age she was at the time, girl, drove in her own car across town to drop them off. She could have easily thrown some of them into the dumpster. There's so much trust in our system. It's easy to manipulate. Now, again, I'm not trying to say Trump was right on this. I'll make it very clear. But routinely, for example, a good example of rigging election almost certainly was the Bush Jr. victory in 2000, where uh, uh, he won essentially by roughly 400 votes in Florida, giving him the election where his own brother was governor. Well, and when they tried to do a recount, the Supreme Court stopped it. Another example of a strange election was the 1960 Kennedy election. It appeared as if the mafia in Chicago, because again, uh, Joe Kennedy had mafia ties. John was a good old Roman Catholic, as the mafia men were, that they were uh, rigging the election in Chicago to help Kennedy carry Illinois. And then LBJ was in Texas, and 500,000 votes were cast out by the court system in Texas. They just threw them out. And on a typical election for president, about 2 million votes are discarded. They never talk about this. Now, the interesting point about the last election, not was Trump cheated or was did Biden cheat? To me, the way the media and the system closed ranks, the New York Times, instead of saying Trump alleges, they would say the false claim. In fact, I get the man, the Guardian from Britain and the Economist, they did the same thing. And I was also struck when Gore lost in 2000, and he simply let it go. He, he let them take the election away from him. So, um, 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 again, frankly, though, back to the point I was talking about, too, with secret societies, 
it really doesn't matter who's the president anyway, in a sense, because again, the whole system is going to carry us in a different direction. Um, but um, there, there's been some historically, um, uh, every democratic system has hanky panky going on. It's not just the United States. Although, what but the question we, mark is: Is it significant hanking panky? Does it bend the curve of history, or is it, as we used to say in the physics game, down in the noise? Well, to tell the truth, I, I, I'm not certain again who won, but to insist that um, Biden clearly won, I think um, he was caring for example, if I remember correctly, I may be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, he was receiving more African American votes in Atlanta. Philadelphia, Detroit, and Milwaukee than Obama got. Now, if anybody really believes that, <laughs> it seems as if they were throwing in votes that were... Uh, well, you, you can't discount the efforts of uh, James Clyburn in North Carolina, who had a profound effect. And there's also the backlash. I mean, an awful lot of people, again, by countless polls over four years, were not happy with Donald Trump. And they would have elected, you know, your average house cat if they were given the opportunity. I think we have this confluence. Getting back to the, to the, the question where we started this dialogue, belief systems apart from realities can take hold and can move history. I think that was your thesis, right? Yes, yes. As we should return to that. And it is really important. Um, again, something doesn't – and by the way, I want to make it clear, because I, I actually teach a course on myths and legends at Shawnee State. Um, there are belief systems in everywhere. It's not just in religion or in history. Uh, for example, we don't really know and we cannot prove scientifically that space is infinite. They insist that it is, but we can't prove that. It's only a concept since the 18th century, so it's a myth. The economists, by what I myth, I mean a belief that helps us to orient ourselves in the universe. The economists say that endless growth seems to be possible. They're always talking about if the economy doesn't grow, there's a problem. Obviously, endless economic growth is not possible, yet they talk as if it is. Um, and by the way, we hear in political science, you have the right to vote. No, you don't. You've never had the right to vote in the United States. The Supreme Court ruled that in the 19th century, when women pointed out that they were citizens but were not, were not allowed to vote in the 19th century, the Supreme Court ruled that voting is separate from citizenship. So we have these beliefs throughout uh, virtually every um, uh, field. Anthropology, now this one is, has a positive benefit, to unite the human race and to stop conflict. Anthropology is now insisting that there is no such thing as race. Uh, but we can actually tell race from skeletons. Uh, we can tell what people are. So, but it's a positive myth that unites us, a great brotherhood, the human race. And, and while I'm on that, I was talking earlier about um, the endless, again, wars, conflicts, and so forth. Uh, Orwell's book, 1984, he has this wonderful statement by O'Brien, who's the party member saying that the reason there are these depressions, wars, riots, protests, conflicts, poverty, slums, and so forth, is if everyone on planet Earth were educated, well-fed, lived in decent housing, and so forth, lived on safe streets, had no wars, 
it would become obvious that the elite serves no purpose. So the elite creates the problems because that frightens the masses into needing help, thinking these are our saviors. Well, isn't this the classic Hegelian dialect, you know, problem, solution, reaction, solution? Yes, exactly, exactly. And also, uh, another book that's commonly quoted in the United States, but no one ever takes the really meaty part of it, Malthus, Essay on Population. That's one, of course, that says that populations increase geometrically, but resources increase arithmetically. But that's not the most important thing he says. He actually says in the book that we must create slums. We must not stop epidemics. We must actually spread poverty and so forth, because if we don't, the poor will multiply and create a disaster. So he says that the, uh, all of the bad things going on on planet Earth are actually benefiting the species. And in a sense, he's right, although I hate to say it because it's horrifying, but we forget that when we do eliminate, well, for example, Haber during World War I era created nitrogen fertilizer uh, synthetically, and that's dramatically increased the crop yields and caused huge population explosions. And we've got, we've cut down infant mortality rates dramatically. Um, archaeologists find in North Africa. Yeah, but wait, 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 wait. I have seen curves, it was kind of, you know, in vogue back in the 70s that you can trace, and I'm forgetting where the study was done, and there may have been more than one. <clears throat> where as societies get richer, the birth rate falls. In fact, we, the United States, are not replacing Americans with Americans, which is why immigration is the life's blood of our economics and society, because without immigration, you know, that curve continues to bend downward as it does in all industrialized sectors. So there's something wrong with the fundamental tenet because as societies get richer, they have fewer offspring. Well, that is actually true. For example, you look at, in fact, Russia by 2050 will have fewer people. Than oh, it's Turkey. vanishing. I mean, it's, it's, yes, like, it's, like, it's like a ghost town. But what we're missing the point is Kenya's population is doubling every 17 years. It's so doubling. what's the solution? I don't know. We make and, Kenya rich. Well, very Kenya's, simple. Well, and we and see we have the means to do all this, and the question, which is at the core of what I want to talk to you about this evening, is why don't we do this? Are we trapped by ideas, which when they're tested empirically, which I just laid out, rich societies have fewer children, so that population curve automatically tends to bend toward uh, either a steady state replacement or even a deficit. Why do we allow such discontinuities between the third world and the first world, et cetera, where in these so-called third world countries, you have to have a lot of children because there's a huge death toll and children are the mainstay of the elder generation when they become too old to work and need to be sustained without a social safety net. By the way, several points. Uh, one is it seems as if in rich societies, we think people are making choices to cut the birth rate, and that's partly true. But I think also infertility spreads. It's been estimated, I forget the figure, about 40% of married couples have infertility problems. 
And we're not certain why. Could it be the plastics and the environment causing? It's been estimated that male um, uh, fertility, the amount of basically sperm discharge, is one half of what it was in the 1940s. Um, and for some reason, this happened to the Romans, the Greeks, they all died out. And yeah, but wait, 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 the Romans and the Greeks did not have plastic. That's what I would say. So we don't know what's happening. Is it a function of when it happened to the Romans and the Greeks, was it a function of the fact they made the choices not to get married, not to have children? That's what our historians would say. Well, the, so the, probably the, a combination. The, the, Mark, the, the, the folks that I've read said basically it's because when you get wealthy enough, you don't need children economically to support you in your old age. And people being innately selfish, they enjoy the liberty of not having children and having discretionary income and doing things together or maybe doing things apart, etc. In other words, it's really the central tenet of selfishness, which when you're wealthy enough to be selfish, that perpetuates that curve to where you do not replace the population. Well, curiously enough, modern research shows that in the case of England, and this would apply to other European countries, if you're of English descent, you're actually descended from the English upper class. Because in the 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th centuries, they had more children survive than the poor people did. They were dying in such large numbers. The poor people didn't replace themselves. So clearly in the 16th century, the wealthier people were having the children. It's a really complex, I don't have the simple answer, but at one point I do want to make clear, you mentioned, and it is true that you would say, well, to solve the Kenyan problems, and I don't know if it is a problem, they would say we're simply doing what we do. Uh, it's been estimated that to put the entire world at American standard of living, you would need three planet Earths. We consume so many resources that we would need three planet Earths to put everybody at our level. And um, clearly, and incidentally, some of these secret societies, such as the Club of Rome and so forth, talk about human population cutting it back. That's one of their core notions, that, it, that our fundamental notion. And it's been suggested that, for example, the spread of, of the, the, the birth control stuff, which starts with the pill, and then the legalization of abortion, also the legalization of pornography, because pornography, when it's widespread, cuts libido. If people are seeing nudity all the time, they become more difficult to arouse. <laughs> they become bored? <laughs> yes, it's actually true. There's no erections in nudist camps, people walking around. And in fact, Europeans used to comment when they went to these third world countries, that that's, they didn't call it that at the time, they, never, they saw naked men walking around, but they were never sexually aroused. And they commented on that. Whereas Victorians could get excited by the sight of a, a flash of a, of a female ankle <laughs> would, would turn them on. So it's been suggested that all of the, again, the, the modernization. Oh, and by the way, you mentioned how we need immigration to maintain our population. It's been suggested the real reason. No, I didn't say population. I said the economics of the country are dependent on immigration more and more as the domestic population reproduces less and less as we have gotten richer. Well, Japan lost a million people in a five-year period because, again, their birth rate's falling. Yet they're smart enough. They still keep it Japanese. You can't move easily to Japan. 
because they want to preserve their individual culture. And the reason immigration here, in fact, when my own ancestors arrived here, it's always been about cheap labor in the United States. And that's where indentured servitude, where convicts being shipped here, slavery being shipped here, then the immigrants arriving first from the poor areas of Europe, later from the poor areas of the third world. And they, when you have immigrants, you not only uh, have cheap labor and they drive the labor costs down, they also, you have consumers. When immigrants come here, they need to buy houses, clothing, and food. So the reason the floodgates, now I wanna make it clear, I'm not trying to say, let's get rid of immigrants. I'm just, because my own grandfather was an immigrant, my both sides, is um, the consequences are, it's not, we're trying to help out the human race, offering them asylum. We want cheap labor and we want consumers. And, but we tend to think short term, for example, uh, the last I looked, the American uh, national debt is now each taxpayer, if we were to pay it off, would have to pay $185,000 to pay off the national debt. It's clearly getting out of control. And in fact, this recent, when they've been turning on the printing presses, printing money, this is really scary because for years they insisted you can't do that. Germany did that in 1923 and got hyperinflation, but suddenly we're doing it. I'm, I'm wondering if they're trying to crash. See, the, the Germans paid off their national debt that way. They crashed their currency. It became, uh, by the end of 1923, it required about 2 trillion marks to buy a turnip. And the currency lost all value. And if they were to cause hyperinflation here, a homeless person, well, let me say, let's say an elderly person living at a rest home could pay off the national debt with a personal check. If it's now going to cost basically $2 trillion to buy a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. Um, there seems to be, we create our own problems. And by the way, our, our, our agriculture, we now have only about 1.5% of Americans are now farmers. And the average farmer is over 60 years old, roughly 60 years old. And we're destroying the topsoil, all these chemical fertilizers. And um, it's almost as if they're trying to create Armageddon, at least a chaos. Uh, okay, but hold yeah. it there. We're at the top of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. We're talking about why is life on Earth the way life is on Earth? Is it because of uh, Malthusian economics? Is it because of social status? You know, if you don't have poor, you can't have rich, you can't have elites. Is it because of some, I mean, I'll introduce another idea, an extraterrestrial control plan where uh, a la the Charles Sport model, just kind of cattle, we're being managed and maybe we're not being managed in uh, very important ways. Anyway, you're on the other side of midnight. Important questions. I want to come back to the three-planet idea when we return, and we shall do so right after these words. Stay tuned. This year, give more than a gift with Harry and David. Well, we don't want to do that, so... Give a memory and give love. <laughs> uh, 
Sometimes these things happen at the most inopportune times. midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night uh, in about an hour to be Monday morning here in the land of enchantment. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello, and we're talking about some really fundamental questions like, is the world just this chaotic randomization of various wants and desires and competitions and you know, sometimes very fierce competitions, or is it in fact uh, organized by some hidden hand, some force behind the scenes, which is uh, attempting to to bring order out of out of out of chaos? I don't know whether we can actually answer those questions, but let me go back to the the three planet thing. Uh, you said a moment ago that um, economists have calculated that to bring everyone up to current American standards would require three planets. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. I think it, was, it was a Canadian professor. I think they made that estimate. Okay. Um, it wasn't. Although the, only, only enough, most American wealth is, is actually not even real. Uh, people are uh, such in, in debt in America. Uh, we've normalized debt. My father bought three houses with cash. I bought my house with cash. My grandfather bought his house with cash, but now people will borrow and the pernicious effects of interest are horrifying. And by the way, technically, I should mention, of course, you would know this, that there's no reason for them to charge interest at all because they have fractional reserve. The bank will lend out for every dollar on deposit. They'll lend it out to 10 different people. (laughs) So it doesn't even, it's not even necessary. So they have interest on top of this. But when people borrow, they tend, and now we people borrow for automobiles and cars and their their computers, created this indebted society. I'm thinking the typical American now 
will have a couple, married couple, both people will work and they'll spend, I think it's roughly 25 years to 30 years paying off various debts to banks. Um, that's a form of servitude. The ancient Mesopotamians invented debt and we've taken it to new lengths now. And anyone who understands compound interest would never, especially when you see credit card interest. Um, I remember the figure, if someone had invested $1 in 1500 at 6% compound interest, it would now be worth, the, the amount of money to their descendants would be over a trillion dollars, that $1. When the British outlawed slavery in the 1830s, they actually paid off the masters and they borrowed money to do it. They didn't pay off that debt until 2015. They actually retired the debt from 1830 to 2015. At least they paid it off. But um, uh, there's been some suggestion, Carol Quigley, getting into the Secret Society's material, uh, who was Bill Clinton's favorite professor, oddly enough, at Georgetown University. And Clinton quotes him at his acceptance speech at the Democratic Convention this professor, Carol Quigley, um, he said, he called talked about the ruling group as the round table group, he called it, named after King Arthur's round table. Mm -hmm. And he said the way they're controlling the world, and he insisted they were in control, was by controlling, again, the education system, the media, but most of all, the money supply. And all modern money supplies are fiat money. The, the last country to go off the gold standard was Switzerland around the year 2000. All the money on planet Earth now, nothing backs the money. It's simply printed, and we accept it. And frankly, we have to accept it because if people start doubting... Well, see, validity, this goes back to something you said in the last hour, which is that major trends of history can be founded on belief having no relationship to reality. Exactly. The concept uh, of economies and money beyond a certain level appear now to have moved into that domain where it's belief, you know, the full faith and credit of the United States, you know, U.S. bonds, that kind of thing. What I wanted to say is then about the three planets, if you really look at the equation of what wealth is, which is information, resources, and um, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember the third one. Um, I, I sound like a certain secretary of energy. Um, <laughs> and, you know, the, 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 the foundations of wealth them, themselves are not immutable. And that's where that concept of the closed um, environment versus an open environment comes in. Yes, it would take three planets if we are operating according to 19th century economic rules. The fact is, A, we're not, and B, there are extraordinary suppressed advances in science and technology which can completely change that, that, that equation because, for instance, uh, information is now, by means of the uh, you know, AI revolution, accessible to anyone, anywhere, at any time, anything the human race has ever figured out is available on this thing you can hold in your hand anywhere on the planet that has had a stunning uh, positive effect on on productivity um, particularly in terms of organizing 
large-scale information systems. And I would point to NASA as an example where an industrial society organized, you know, hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of corporations to achieve a goal within 10 years that had been a chimera for centuries before. And it only took organization at a mega level. And isn't it interesting, uh, Mark, that the head of NASA at that time, a 33rd degree Mason, was named James Webb, for whom the new telescope is named? And by the way, Buzz Aldrin actually claimed the moon for the Freemasons. (laughs) Well, he took a flag. And well, he actually did. He performed a ritual and, and claimed the entire moon for the Freemasons, put it under the Texas Lodge he was under. Uh, and uh, Armstrong was also. Uh, no, um, Armstrong was not a Mason. That I is, thought he was. No, fact, no, I no. I double check. No, no, no. Well, I that know is, Biden was. Sorry, I know that Buzz Aldrin was. And and by the way, uh reminds me while we're talking about space, because, again, it was Larry Niven, the sci-fi writer, who said that the dinosaurs are extinct because they didn't have a space program. Um, I suspect, and you've probably gone in this direction, that the real purpose of the space program is perhaps we have a doomed Earth and there's an attempt to get to escape, that we have to go somewhere else. And in fact, Well, I'm totally that's not e- uh, easily true either because it's only doomed if we don't change how we're doing business. I, I was going to go back. You know, it's energy, information, and organization is basically determines wealth, okay? Uh, well, actually, there was a 1920s uh, economic thinker who made the distinction between what he called real wealth and virtual wealth. Now, he's 1920, so he's not talking about computers. And he said real wealth is, for example, food, uh, well, wheat, corn, coal in his mind, oil. That's resources, steel. okay. Yes. And he said virtual wealth is, frankly, fake wealth. For example, a lot of American wealth is just this, this imaginary – you have these, these millionaires on Wall Street passing around paper, what used to be paper, now virtually, making all kinds of money but not really producing real wealth, um, the entire baking industry and so forth. Um, there are so many people. In fact, our, our industrial base and farming base are getting gutted. They're the real producers of wealth, to my mind, while everyone moves into these, these uh, play-acting economic production. Now, when you mentioned intellectual property, in a sense, see, that's a modern notion. There, there's no such thing as a patent in earlier times. And anyone, the printing press, anybody could make it once it was invented. And frankly, authors had no claim uh, a 17th, 16th century. If you wrote a book, the printers copied it, sold it. He took the money for the individual copy. He didn't pay the author. We've built this notion of, of um, property, intellectual property. But at any rate, um, um, I really do think we're having uh, – There's a, and people tend to go, well, what's going to cause the problem? Well, it's multifaceted. Again, the population issue, the degradation of topsoil with our modern farming methods. Uh, Also, there could be something, strange enough, in the 1970s, they said an ice age was returning. Today, we say it's global warming. But I know you've had David Icke on your show before. Yeah, several times. Yes, he said um, when the elite are talking, reverse everything they say. 
So if they tell us it's global warming, it's probably an ice age returning. And if they tell us that mm. sodium fluoride, that I sodium. I don't think you can use that as a hard and fast rule. Cause just well, I'm just look, giving look an example. The, look at the satellite images of the Arctic and where is the ice? It's gone. So anyway, back to my three planets thing. If, if, the, if the basis of real wealth, and I like the idea of dividing it between real and virtual, because that gets back to, you know, what people think, beliefs as opposed to reality. If you have resources, energy, and, uh, you know, information, that's the basis. It's a three-legged stool of all real wealth. Energy is currently limited because it's, uh, at the moment, fossil fuels. We talk alternative energy like solar and all that, but there are limits to that because of the solar constant. You can't concentrate sunlight more than a certain amount. Um, uh, resources, obviously we have a finite planet. That's where the solar system comes in. And information, well, that's the accumulation of, of knowledge and scientific uh, reproducible you know, results, et cetera, et cetera. If you organize society around an energy system which is not dependent on fossil fuels or solar energy, but in fact the torsion field of, of, of the vacuum, so-called zero point, um, there are devices now that have been suppressed uh, by black ops projects, both here and in the former Soviet Union, that for something the size of a bread box can run a house, and they can run it forever, and there's no environmental degradation there's no things don't wear out it's solid state they just produce electricity ad infinitum if you add in the fact uh, per my my former uh, friend and uh, uh, at MIT um, that resources themselves can be manufactured out of the vacuum in other words, you can create matter if you tap into the torsion field for energy you can use the same techniques to create matter so you're not limited by resources, by mining, by 19th century strip mining, et cetera, et cetera. And information is the ability to organize this in the, in the sense of, of nanorobotics, um, AI, et cetera, et cetera. You create the foundation for an entirely new level of human existence that walks or can walk very lightly on the land. So you don't need three planets. You just need to unlock these suppressed technologies, which have been uh, known for at least a century, but the elites have locked them up. This is demonstrable through several uh, research efforts by, by colleagues of mine that have written books over the centuries, over the centuries, over the decades, like uh, Dr. Paul LaViolette, looking at the energy equation as well as the anti-gravity situation, which were two sides of the same coin. The point is, it's the social system which is keeping us in thrall, not the fundamental economics of energy, information, and resources. And that implies someone is doing this and suppressing it and keeping us down on the farm. Or in the words of uh, uh, Alex Jones, you know, we are in a prison planet scenario because someone wants us to remain in a prison planet scenario, which opens up the doorway to who is really running the show and to what end. Yes, in fact, it takes us back to my original point made some time ago that um, that if there is an elite, again, to go to the Orwell book, they sabotage us intentionally to create their, their own need for their existence. 
Now, when you get into these um, these secret societies, and let, let's uh, finally get uh, bring some of those up to to mention. In fact, I noticed you your original uh, advertisement for this. You mentioned the Freemasons on the ad. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, let me mention that um, most Freemasons are so-called porch brethren. That's a term from Freemasonic order. They're, uh, they go through the first three orders, and it creates um, business opportunities, friendship, and um, but to become a Freemason at the first three orders, the individual has to ask a Freemason three times. And the first two times, the Freemason won't even reply. And then if the individual asks a Mason three times, then the person may then carry it forward. And if he gets support within the lodge, they have a vote, which is called the ordeal of the ballot. And the members of the lodge will cast a white ball if they approve, a black ball if they disapprove. That's where our term black ball comes from. Mm -hmm. And then the person's brought into the first level if he's accepted. And there's the first initiation and they go through, he's hoodwinked, which means he's blindfolded. They put a cable toe around his neck, which means a hangman's noose. He dresses in a certain clothing. He must have no metal on his person. All of this has magical significance. And the ritual must be done from memory. They may not read these rituals. They must be memorized. That's, again, you do this in magic. Well, the first three levels, up to Master Mason, and up to that level, they include, most importantly, the grand hailing sign of distress which is if a mason is in jeopardy, if he makes that, other masons are to try to help him. Uh, There's an allegation that Santa Ana, the president of Mexico, who had massacred people at Alamo, as well as elsewhere in Texas, the reason he was not killed by the Texans is because he was a Freemason. He gave the grand hailing sign of distress, and his life was spared. So there are benefits to this, to you joining. And incidentally, if you're on trial, you're a Freemason. You can send Freemasonic um, signs to the jury, the judge, and so the, even the prosecuting attorney. And this, uh, if there's a Mason on the jury, he may help you and vote to help you. In other words, don't vote guilty. Uh, I'll have Charles Manson kept flashing Freemasonic signs during his trial, but of course he was just knew what they were. He wasn't a Mason. Now, the interesting part, though, about the Freemasons are not the first three degrees. There are 30 higher degrees in York Rite Masonry. I'm sorry, Scottish Masonry, Scottish Rite. There are 30 higher degrees, and there they're open by invitation only. And um, if you get to the very highest level, if we go to the UK, there's about 600,000 Freemasons, but only 75 persons roughly at the 33rd degree. And it's unclear um, what goes on at these high levels. Um, We do know that if, here's the rather curious theory, it's been suggested that when you get into the higher degrees in all secret societies, not just the Freemasons, you're often told to do something that's offensive. And the reason you do this, because if you say, I refuse, that's offensive, They then tell you you made the right decision, but frankly, you will never go any farther. You'll stop. But if you commit 
the offensive act. It was said among the Templars, we don't know if this is true, but they had to spit on the cross and trample on it. You then proceed to higher levels. And uh, this... Well, pretty, isn't this kind of the same thing that the, the skull and bones at Yale used uh, do or used to do? I think they still do, where you tell terrible, horrible secrets of terrible things you've done. So basically, you know, they have something on you. It was alleged that the initiates would lie in a coffin naked and discuss all their sexual activities, beginning with masturbation and prep school. Now, the thing, I'm glad you brought up Skull and Bones, because uh, first of all, um, they're almost certainly going to uh, disappear as we know it in the future, because they made, in the 1990s, and I'll make this clearly clear, I'm not trying to make a misogynistic notion here, mm-hmm. but they started to admit women. And secret societies tend to be overwhelmingly male for a reason. It's because there's a lot of weird activities frightening activities they often will indulge in during initiation, for example. It was alleged that the Skull and Bones people were stealing grave robbing, like they have Pancho Villa's skull. I, uh, thought, it was, I thought it was Geronimo. So that one, Geronimo, even there's even a claim they have Martin Van Buren's skull. Huh. Now, they deny it, but here's the point. Once you start admitting women, that's going to stop. Uh, the the lying naked in a coffin discussing your sexual history, women won't do that. And they won't be doing grave digging. Well, no, so wait, 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 wait. How do we know that is a hard and fast rule? About women? Yeah. Well, I'm quoting secondary sources who have suggested that once you admit women to a secret society, it becomes more of a social club. If you compare, for example, the Masonic oaths with the... Um, uh, they have a, they have female associated groups with the Freemasons that are not regular Freemasons but do similar rituals. The women will hold candles and put a veil over their face and express love for one another in their rituals. Men will talk about cutting off the tops of their heads if they violate the oath, tearing out their intestines, cutting out their hearts. Now, again, I'm not trying to make a – I know today the idea is gender doesn't exist and women are not different from men. But it seems to be the case that the secret societies are overwhelmingly male and they have these often sexual or dangerous aspects to them. Now, women also have secret societies in history. There were various religious cults that were open only to women in antiquity and also various organizations throughout time that are women only. But they tend to be nobler in nature. They express support for one another and love and affection. Um, now, again, I could be totally wrong on this, but uh, I should mention about Skull and Bones. It's only function through history, and it was started in the um, 1830s, is really to, um, it's roughly 30 families have been, dominate the membership, and it's basically to promote themselves economically uh, and socially. Um, and as a result of that, because they're in such high positions, if you're in Skull and Bones, well, a really egregious example was McGeorge Bundy, hmm. who was a member of Skull and Bones. He graduated from Yale, I think it was 1940, with a baccalaureate degree. Because of the war, he enters as a private. Within one year of getting into the military, he's a captain helping to plan the invasion of Sicily, the Allied, Allied invasion of Sicily, and later the Allied invasion of Normandy. Now, where does he have any expertise in these areas? <laughs> He's later dean of the faculty 
at Harvard, Arts and Sciences faculty, with a baccalaureate degree. He's later a national security advisor for Kennedy. Mm. I mean, he is no way qualified to do any of these jobs, yet he gets them. How does George Bush Sr. become director of the CIA? Um, again, how does, well, oh, by the way, uh, I should mention, getting back to one of my original points, I was trying to talk about how secret societies control, if they are in control. Um, we go back to when the British, for example, were controlling Africa, West, their colonies in West Africa, with just about 1,200 people. And this is called indirect rule. Lord Lugard coined the term. They also were controlling India, a vast country at the time, had several hundred million people with a few thousand officials. And the way they did it, again, indirect rule, is they would identify the local tribal elite, they called them, and then support them and give them positions and, and money and power to basically run the town like they, they could run the town, the little village in Africa, any way they wanted to, but they were answerable to the British Empire, ultimately. So the notion is, if synarchy exists, the Clintons, the Bushes are the tribal elite. They're, George Bush Jr. was a C-plus student, and, um, but he's related, most Americans can't believe this, to 16 American presidents. Uh, I'm not related to a president. I don't know how many people in the audience are, but he was related to 16. And again, he was basically performing, uh, he's, he's appointed because he's reliable. Um, Clinton, when he was governor, this obscure governor of Arkansas, gets invited to the Bilderberg meeting uh, just before. Now, by the way, the Bilderbergers have a core membership of 80 people. It's been estimated that their net wealth is greater than the entire holdings of all Americans. These 80 people are worth more than all Americans. And they have these secret meetings. The location changes from year to year. Uh, roughly 120 people attend the meetings, but the uh, 40 extra ones tend to be basically useful tools. Uh, Ferguson, the historian, has been invited. Clinton's been invited. Tony Blair's been invited, even though they don't qualify as the mega wealth. And the deal is you do what we say, we do what we suggest, and you'll go far. You shake uh, the boat and we'll throw you overboard. Uh, this is being how it would potentially work. And incidentally, when the politics of America, notice the politicians are endlessly using what are called totems and scarecrows. A totem is such as uh, a sacred object like freedom, democracy, equality. Scarecrow would be depression, violence, guns, war, racism. These are scarecrows. And they constantly use these terms. And, and by the way, while I'm on it, watch any Bill Clinton speech, any speech. He will always mention children, no matter what he's talking about. Because that's a great totem. Who can object to children? And he's a clever politician. Uh, when he left office, he was bankrupt, and now they're multimillionaires again. How did that happen? Um, but again, this is how the system works. And I should mention to your audience, this, I want to make this really clear. 
I don't want to convince anybody out there that there's this horrific system and that we're being dominated like livestock. And as a result, you must rebel because, uh, frankly, uh, uh, resistance is futile. It really won't work. I suggest you just pay your taxes, do what you're told. If you resist, they'll take you down. Um, I bet many of your audience probably never heard of Congressman Lewis McFadden. And um, there were three attempts to murder him. One with a gun, one with, a, with poison, his food was poison. And the third attempt that got him, they alleged he got the flu, which is a bit suspicious. I'll tell you what, uh, hold it there. We're at the bottom of the hour. Okay. And we'll come back with the McFadden story. I've, I've dimly heard of McFadden. It's kind of intriguing. So stay tuned. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning, who is a historian in Ohio, got a PhD in uh, Glasgow. And isn't it interesting that Donald Trump's mother was Scottish? Anyway, you are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. We shall return. Hogland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19-point archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, 
this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. And if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well because we need all of you. When I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Oakland, over and out. And welcome back, everyone, to the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, almost Monday morning now, May 2nd, here from the Land of Enchantment. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. And we're talking about something which is so fundamental. It's almost like air. It's, it surrounds us. It's, we breathe it in. Who really runs the world? Does anybody run the world? Or are there trends? Are there currents? Is it, as I have looked into at some length, is it really modulated by a background physics which changes consciousness? That's where the fourth turning comes from in this model, that you have this confluence of cycles which ebb and flow in the grand course of history, and that this is what is modulating what we think of as human society in many different aspects, in many different countries and societies all over the globe. Or is there some secret central group which, if not in terms of day-to-day control, modulates our lives, are there directions? Are there inclinations? Are there, are there certain um, rewards and punishments for not, not really, as Mark said a moment ago, rocking the boat? Uh, you know, Mark, I, 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 I really think this is a very important question. So let's get back to the senator and the story of what happened to him when he apparently tried to rock the boat. Yes, that was Lewis McFadden. And um, interesting point is this all ties into, now let me make it very clear. One group you do to your audience, you do not want to cause trouble to is the Federal Reserve. The, the conspiracy theorists call it the Jekyll Island Group, because it was organized at a secret meeting on Jekyll Island off the coast of Georgia. It was at a private resort. Everyone that went there, I think it was six men, traveled incognito. They did not use their names while meeting to cover it up. And essentially, even though the Constitution makes it clear that Congress is in charge of the money supply, the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 now, again, do not resist this. It'll get you into trouble. Turned over our entire money supply to the Federal Reserve, which, is act, which are actually private banks. The American Federal Reserve is no more federal than the Federal Express is. These are private <laughs> bankers. And they, oddly enough, it costs just 1.5 cents to print a $100 bill. And then the government, the government offices will print it up, and then they'll 
basically borrow it from the Federal Reserve. They pay interest on every dollar produced. This is the system set up. And uh, there are member banks within that tie into the Federal Reserve. And if you go to the local bank, it's being insured by what appears to be federal insurance. Although the trouble with the federal insurance is it only works if a couple banks collapse. If they all, for example, during the Great Depression, before the, the, the FDIC existed, 15,000 American banks collapsed and people lost everything they're, they're saving. Canada, oddly enough, not a single bank collapsed during the Depression. Zero. 15,000 did here. But back to McFadden. He was ferociously opposed to turning over our private money to private bankers. And he fought it in Congress. He argued against it. And now again... Now, when, he, was, when was McFadden a uh, senator? Well, actually, he was a congressman. And I'm trying to remember, I think he dies in the 1920s. I forget off the top okay, of my head. Okay. It's, it's a long time ago. And um, I remember, by the way, uh, Charles Lindbergh's father was also... Uh, opposed to the Federal Reserve. There were several. The Federal Reserve Act was passed just before Christmas, so Harley Ammon was there, went through. Henry Ford famously said, if Americans understood how banking really worked, I forget how he phrased it, but said they would just be shocked and appalled and would throw the rogues out. But um, everyone who has challenged it, well, first of all, we mentioned two American presidents have issued debt-free money outside the banking system, Lincoln and Kennedy, and both were shot in the head in public. Uh, in fact, uh, Marina Oswald, Oswald's widow, was convinced that the Federal Reserve was actually involved in the Kennedy killing. And incidentally, Oswald's widow, who was born in Russia, her husband, I mean, her father was a KGB officer. Most Americans don't realize that. Um, again, rather curious. And incidentally, to this day, Lee Harvey Oswald's income tax returns are classified. It's been suggested he was actually a government operative. Hmm. Well, he, he, he came and went such that he really does appear to have been some kind of a double agent. Yeah. And by the way, Sarah Jane Moore, who tried to assassinate Gerald Ford, was actually an FBI paid informant. Hmm. which is curious. Uh, often, um, the, by the way, the American intelligence system, and we have federal police officers, about 83,000 of them. They're roughly the population of Albany, New York. They are really good at penetrating internal dissident groups. At one time in the 1960s, they completely controlled the Indiana Ku Klux Klan. They were the leadership, in fact. In the 1950s, they completely controlled the American Communist Party. It's been suggested that if all of their operatives had quit the American Communist Party, it would have collapsed from financial problems. <laughs> um, and if people show up at protests, um, they will have plants there. Um, in fact, the Nixon administration was planting operatives at anti-war protests to cause rioting. For example, if one person throws a rock through a window or starts to loot or starts to set the car on fire, it'll spread rapidly. And um, so uh, they, they, the American intelligence community is really good. In fact, I'm reminded of the story. There was this anti-government group 
led by Robert J. Matthews in the 1980s called The Silent Brotherhood. They've made two films about them, but the films are so off the story, they're not even close to the original story. They essentially, they've been called white supremacists, but in fact, they were white separatists. They were rabidly anti-Semitic, and they were the ones, they were claiming that Jewish people were somehow controlling America and the world, and they were rabidly anti-Semitic. But the reason I brought them up is because Robert J. Matthews, who's eventually burned alive in a cabin in Oregon, uh, surrounded by dozens of police officers, federal officers, FBI, and so forth, they used phosphorus, which should be... uh, outlawed in war, but it's used, uh, they call them illumination flares when they burn you alive. Uh, If you're surrounded by the FBI, give up because they'll eventually burn you out. You don't want to mess with them. They did that at Waco as well. And at any rate, when he was in high school, he formed, and he, by the way, he didn't date, didn't smoke, didn't drink, didn't use drugs, for a time joined the Mormons. When he was in high school, he formed an anti-income tax group. And they put an informant in his high school. By the time he was 19 or 20 and out of high school, they had planted an informant, federal government did, in his anti-tax group. If they're paying attention to someone like that with a group of schoolboys, they're going to follow everybody. So, again, um, I, I give the example, too. If you live in Palermo and the mob wants to collect protection money from you, the Sicilian mafia, you can't possibly beat the mob. And um, you can't possibly beat the system. Now, McFadden, the official history says, and by the way, I'd like to joke in my classes, official historians always say Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Conspiracy theorists say Humpty Dumpty was pushed. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the official history will simply say uh, he made up the uh, when he got sick from the poisoning, that was just a food poisoning. And when somebody shot at him, that was just a routine shooting. And that when he died of the flu, that was basically natural causes. But um, uh, another per- and by the way, Kennedy, a few months before he was killed, introduced the um, silver certificates that were backed they were outside of the federal reserve system he was issuing money for the first time since federal reserve that was outside the federal reserve system debt-free money and right after he was shot johnson pulled all the money this could be a coincidence we don't know Hmm. incidentally um oddly enough now let me make this really clear these are wicked people i'm talking about but sometimes wicked people will do beneficial things. It's rather curious, in the middle of the 20th century, there were three major countries that stopped the banking system's control of their money supply. They actually um, took it away from the bankers, the central banks, and issued their own money based on the amount of economic production. It's Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Imperial Japan. And deep conspiracy theorists say that we didn't go to World War II to stop the horrific actions of Hitler against Jewish people or other people or the invasion of Poland or whatever these things are going on or France. Uh, it was the we wanted to restore central banking across the planet. Now, recently in our own lifetime, there was a man again. He was a cruel person, did some nasty things, although in his country they had free health care. 
they had free education all the way through PhDs. If you went overseas, they gave you a stipend and a car while you were overseas. They had subsidized food. Married people got free houses. Uh, this is, I'm talking about Gaddafi. Mm-hmm. But he was trying to issue gold dinars, money that was made out of gold. And he had 140 tons of it. Now, to give you an idea, all the gold ever mined in human history is 60, it's a cube, 60 feet on a side, on the side. Well, people find it hard to believe because most gold we encounter has been adulterated. And um, Gaddafi was going to issue gold dinars. And they ended up being sodomized with a bayonet on film. And all the gold disappeared. By the way, the rebels that were fighting them actually set up a central bank while they were fighting them. Since when do rebels set up central banks? Hmm. So again, rather curious. There's also an obscure person named Jerome uh, Daly. He was a lawyer. I think it was in either the Dakotas or Minnesota, one of those northern states. I say that because people always think these are Georgian or Alabama types. And he took out a mortgage and then refused to pay and sued the bank in court claiming that he didn't owe them the mortgage because the money didn't really exist. It was just simply an account entry. And the jury ruled in his favor. He won. This is the 1960s. Now, the judge who overheard the case, they always dismiss him as a justice of the peace. He was a low-level judge. He dies in a court of fishing accident, claimed he had a heart attack on a rowboat or something. Daly ends up being disbarred. He was a lawyer, disbarred and arrested. And the case on appeal was reversed. So don't try to say, now, by the way, under oath, the uh, bank president actually said under oath that the money didn't really exist. They just created an account entry. He had to because he was under oath. So there's another curious character named Bernard Nothaus. And in the, uh, I forget what his exact dates are, but in the early 21st century, he started issuing, so he's a multimillionaire. He started issuing silver coins. Some of them also had gold, uh, like one ounce silver coins. And it said right on the coin, this is not legal tender. And he sold them <laughs> for the price the price of silver at the time. I think right now, last I looked, it's $26 an ounce. He would sell the coin at market price. And people started to buy them and then use them essentially as currency. He was arrested and prosecuted by the government and accused of, get this, terrorism. Hmm. Now, the reason for that, and they're actually right, if you start creating the gold dinar appears, the silver note house coin, if people lose faith in the American dollar, it could cause a panic and it could be disastrous. So if they are stopping these people, shooting them in the head in public or uh, also sending them to prison on terrorism charges, actually, I think he managed to get on a probation or something because he was highly educated and so forth and rich. Um, uh, um, um, 
Well, Bernie Madoff, by the way, the old joke is, and I think this is from uh, David Icke said that he only went to maximum security prison for life because he robbed the rich. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you if you rob the poor people, you'd get about five years in minimum security with uh, you know uh, Ponzi schemes. At any rate, they're doing this for a purpose. You you can't create panic in the monetary system. Um, but so, but by the way, I should close with on this. Federal Reserve stuff, Mark Pittman, who is the only person in history to file a lawsuit against the Federal Reserve, claiming they were basically uh, doing some illicit activities. And he drops dead in his 40s, walking down the sidewalk. Official ruling was heart attack. Now, we've known for years how to cause a heart attack. In fact, during the Frank Church Committee hearings, uh, that was in the 1970s, post-Watergate, Senator Frank Church. They actually looked at the FBI, CIA, had what was called a heart attack gun. It, it shot an ice projectile that had a lethal toxin. If the person got hit by it, like on the neck, he would feel what feels like a mosquito bite with a small bloody spot, like a mosquito had bitten you. Mm. And then you'd have a heart attack. And the ice projectile would melt. So it would be no trace of it there. Of course. Uh, also, when Jack Ruby shot Oswald, he claimed he died of cancer in prison. He claimed the government gave him cancer. And of course, Orthodox history laughs at that, says he was just paranoid. But in fact, we've known how to cause cancer for years. Uh, you can do it during a medical examination. Beryllium. If you place the element beryllium, for example, inside of somebody during a medical examination, like inside their nose, inside their, down their throat, during a colonoscopy, um, they'll develop cancer at that location. We don't, we can't cure it allegedly. By the way, I've got cancer and I think my medical care has cost since I was diagnosed in 2013, uh, actually New Year's Eve, 2012, 2013, has been $400,000. Good grief. Most of it has been paid by my health insurance at Shawnee State. I think I'm out of pocket about 30 grand over the years, personally. But will they ever cure cancer? Because it's such a source of income. And um, so, again, but what I'm trying to say to your listeners, uh, don't don't try to rebel. Uh, You just if it's one thing to understand your livestock but don't try to escape from the farm. Uh, this all may be coincidence. Oh, by the way, speaking of um, cancer, I should mention, because we'll go back to the secret societies again, Stephen Knight wrote several books attacking the Freemasons, including, this is in Britain, including claiming that they were involved in the Jack the Ripper murders, the five women that were slashed to death. There were clues during the murders that seemed to indicate Freemasonic symbolism. Like a bloody apron. Didn't they recently trace the Ripper murders to some member of the royal family? Well, the story is that the Duke of Clarence, who was the grandson of Queen Victoria, and frankly kind of crazy syphilitic, if we can uh, piece this all together. The story is he had an illegitimate child with a Roman Catholic. Back in those days, it was strictly Protestant line because the crown is the head of the Church of England. And uh, married, I think, still, I guess they have to be Protestant. Um, and uh, the story is, in fact, that's what Stephen Knight was arguing, that 
they wanted to, well, the woman who was the mother ends up in a madhouse and the baby is taken away. And what they were killing were the witnesses who knew the identity of the father. By putting the mother in a madhouse, they, it's easy to dismiss the ravings of a lunatic. Mm-hmm. My, my, I actually had a child by the Duke of Clarence. Yeah, who's going to believe you? Um, but they got rid of, and the story is, see, if you kill one person, that looks suspicious. So uh, I'm not trying to say that all five were witnesses, but by killing five, it, they invented the so-called serial killer, and it made it look as if these were random killings without motive. That was the key. One way to liquidate someone yeah, is to... Yeah, it's a signal-to-noise problem. Yes. Yes. You, you bury the signal in a bunch of randomization and, you know, again, you know, <clears throat> the way secrets are preserved these days is not through secrets, which are very hard to maintain, but through putting a lot of under information out and no one knows what to believe. Which reminds me, soon after the 9-11, a ex-member of British intelligence was the first one to challenge the official story, this was caused by 19 hijackers on an airline. He claimed they were missiles and holograms and so forth. And he looked legitimate because he was an ex-member of British intelligence. And then after he was covered in the media, he then announced he was the Messiah. Hmm. <laughs> Good way to discredit mm-hmm. these, these, these arguments. It could have been from the start. Oh, by the way, there's another interesting story. Not to get off on that particular thing, but on September 10th, 2001, the uh, controller at the Pentagon with Rumsfeld admitted in a press conference that they couldn't account for over $2 trillion from the Pentagon budget. And I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it just disappeared with the, and also you had the Enron scandal going on where the chief contributor to George Bush Jr. was Kevin Lay. And um, this was Enron collapsed. It was the seventh largest company on New York Stock Exchange by stock value, it collapsed, wiping out billions of dollars of investment money and pension, pensioners and so forth. But it all disappeared in the 9-11 follow-up. And rather curiously, I mentioned earlier about our debt, they were predicting at the end of the Clinton administration that the entire American national debt would be paid off in 10 years because we were getting surpluses um, in the budget and that the debt would be retired within 10 years and then conveniently the 9-11 attack occurs and they run up the big debt fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. And it's been getting out of control ever since. So um, is this, it could just be coincidence. Could be, but we don't know. Um, but it's important to think about these issues. And we said before we went on air, I said, I always tell students, and it's jokingly, and I'm not the only person who have said this in, in history because I've seen other people uh, have said it as well. Uh, never believe anything until it's officially denied. <laughs> uh, so always be skeptical of the official story. Um, and um, and again, it's a it's a curious world. And I should mention, I think I referred to him briefly. He didn't finish the line, but the probably the best we can do in this world is there was a writer called Hakim Bey was his pen name, and um, he coined the term TAS, which is temporary autonomous zone. And he said, the best we can do is carve out a little space of freedom. And he suggested, for example, living off the grid 
getting into the cash economy, constantly being nomadic. And when they find where you are, move on. He called this the temporary autonomous zone. It's the only form of freedom possible in the modern world. Um, which reminds me too, um, we're not as free as Americans were in 1800, strange enough. Um, it's our, our freedoms are being uh, controlled by the multiplication of laws. It's been predicted in the, sometime in the future, whatever is not illegal will be mandatory. <laughs> our behavior is getting more and more circumscribed. Oddly enough, in this country in 1800, this is hard to believe, a 12-year-old, I'm not recommending this behavior, I'm just getting how it used to be. A 12-year-old could walk into any shop in America and buy a handgun, a rifle, some raw opium, and a fifth of whiskey, and, and some tobacco. And it was all legal. Now, again, I'm not trying to say we go back to that, but again, this is how um, we're getting more and more restricted. I just recently saw that New Zealand is discussing a law. I, by the way, not a, I've never taken drugs. I never smoke. I don't do any of this stuff. I don't drink. So I'm not defending these behaviors, but New Zealand is discussing a law. They may have passed it that anyone born, I think it's after 2006 will not be able to buy cigarettes anymore, tobacco products. Um, and again, Tobacco may be bad, but do we want to uh, outlaw behavior? And I'm also concerned with the, um, not to criticize vegetarians, but I have a feeling there's going to be a future move to criminalize meat eating. And they'll do it on legal grounds, moral grounds. They'll say that this is killing animals uh, and we have to get rid of it because it's a horrible, immoral action. And um, But there's some evidence that a vegetarian diet is not actually a healthy one, helpful one. Uh, that's why they have to take vitamins. You cannot, you cannot survive on a purely vegetarian diet. Oddly enough, health, in a healthful way, oddly enough, you can not survive. It'll kill you if you live exclusively on a meat, lean meat diet. It'll kill you. But if you eat meat with fat in it, you can live indefinitely on the, on the diet. It's really curious how we demonize certain things that are, mm. frankly, too simplistic. Okay, we have reached the witching hour. It is midnight. My guest this morning is Doc Mark Marabello. We're talking about, talking about how the world is organized. And when we come back, I want to raise to the level of over 30,000 feet and kind of talk big picture. Where did secret societies begin? And if all of this behavior is kind of so circumscribed that you can't really fight against it, it's like trying to fight against gravity. Why is it founded on secrecy? You're on the other side of midnight. My name's Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. The other side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It's now officially Sunday morning, May 3rd, here in the Land of Enchantment. You're on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. He's an historian with a rather interesting background, um, son of immigrants, um, has helped found an entire college there in uh, rural America in south-central Ohio, and has developed this really interesting interest in secrets, specifically secret societies. I, I guess, Mark, I need to ask the obvious question, which is, how did secret societies themselves as institutions, how did they begin? If human activity is um, so against the grain and the mainstream and the way things are, that they have to be kept secret, that means there must be a counterforce against whatever the intentions or activities or goals of the society are and their ultimate societal aim. So why are there secret societies? And by the way, I have to interject something before I forget it because I keep forgetting to mention this because a lot of what I'm discussing is sounds, shall we say, paranoid. And I don't want to alarm just a alarm. tad, just a bit. <laughs> I don't want to alarm your audience, but Carrie. Thornley, oh, now you tell actually, them. <laughs> Carrie Thornley, who was actually the friend in the Marines with Lee Harvey Oswald, he said, "There's no such thing as paranoia. It's been invented by the ruling elite to discredit anyone who tries to expose them. They say you're crazy." Well, what is the favorite catchphrase of? Every commentator, every pundit, every politician, every opinion writer, every op-ed guy, um, it's conspiracies. Oh, they're conspiracy theorists. The CIA invented the idea of conspiracy theory as a, as a boogeyman, you know, back in the uh, 1960s. So we have this convenient catch-all. If, you're, if your thinking is outside the mainstream, which you're asking questions, raising the edge of the the, the the blanket, you're a conspiracy theorist and nothing you say or believe is to be believed. That's the, the catch-all now where we dismiss these outrageous, um, you know, raising questions question. By the way, we share this with the British, but it, countries like Italy, they had the concept, uh, I'm butchering the pronunciation, but diatrologia, 
which is this concept of the hidden motives behind every action. So for example, if a politician announces that he's going to help disabled per people who have lost limbs in a war, it's because his brother-in-law actually owns a, uh, a, a factory that produces the, 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 the limbs. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a concept of Italy. Now, back to your original questions you asked right after the, the break. And um, the Mormons say that the first secret society is actually in the Garden of Eden, that Cain inspired with the devil, and that secret societies have existed ever since. Oddly enough, Mormons have a secret society aspect. Mormons at the higher level can go through endowment ceremonies, they're called, in the temple, Mormon temples. They receive a special dress like Freemasons do. They receive a secret name that must not re be revealed to anyone. The men may tell their wives, but they, the wives, I'm sorry, the men keep their secret, but the wives tell their husbands their name. So they get the secret names. They get, oddly enough, secret passwords and handshakes for the other side after you die. Um, so again, uh, very similar to Masonic notions. Now, we do know as historians, secret societies do exist even in primitive cultures. 99% of human existence has been hunting and gathering cultures. And uh, we find them in tribal cultures, and we find male secret societies and women secret societies. Um, some of them are quite colorful. The Winnebago Indians in the uh, North America had a secret society in which they would give you secret passwords. So after you died, you would encounter a kind of a spirit woman on your journey to the other side. If you uttered the proper password, you could be reborn on earth again in the flesh, which sounds very similar to the cult of Orpheus, which is a secret society in the ancient Greek world and spread to the Roman world. They gave you secret passwords where, and also information, where to turn when you're on the other side in death and also what words to say. Everyone who didn't do that ended up in a kind of dreary place, but the members of the cult of Orpheus went to a better place. Um, but it's all about, if we move to the more modern world, it's all about power. And frankly, the lesson, if people are listening to me today, tonight, is you can't fight the secret societies, perhaps join one, is it's all about power. Uh, Hannah Arendt, who was a refugee from Germany, Jewish refugee from Germany, wrote one really great book called The Origins of Totalitarianism. I don't like her other books so much, but that one's a great work. And she said that real power begins where secrecy begins. And um, the, everything in life, if we go not to global politics now, but simply local level, it's all a rigged game. Young people may think when they apply for university, graduate school, jobs, that the best candidate gets the job or the scholarship. But a lot of it is luck, but a lot of it is, is rigged. Um, if, for example... Well, isn't a lot of it who you know? Who yes, your father yes. was? How much money? You know, yes. the, the number of, of you know fraternal organizations your family has... In other words, it's all about who you know. Yes. Uh, which reminds me, there was a, a kind of embarrassing moment in the uh, administration of President Taft who himself was in Skull and Bones. And he was invited to deliver a commencement address 
And he, I think it was Taft, I'm having a memory lapse here, but he was delivering a commencement address at the university. And he made up the speech on the way to give the speech. I really didn't think about it. And his, his key phrase was going to be, uh, as he walked in, he saw the sign on the door. It said, push. And he announced to the graduating students, to succeed in life, you need, and he pointed to the door, but now he was inside and it said, pull. Hmm. <laughs> and that's really how it works. Um, and there's a network again, um, uh, even for example, UVA, University of Virginia has legacies. I remember when I filled out the application for grad school, I didn't even know what that was at the time. I was young and stupid. It meant you had a relative who had attended the university and they give you special consideration. A lot of Eastern schools do that. All the Ivy League schools do that. Uh, special consideration. Uh, if a relative, that's, that's why you get, for example, son, grandson, great-grandson, uh, all attending the same colleges. So these, which reminds me too, most Americans don't realize this, there was no such thing really as an elite school system in America until really the 1950s. Ivy League schools were just regional Northeastern schools. And they, they went into marketing and got some ideas to project the notion that this was a special place with special professors and a special opportunity. Tell the truth, I can't remember the last time I read a book by a Harvard historian. Um, and it, they're not, and you won't even see one as an undergraduate. All those courses are taught by graduates. Well, but Kenneth Galbraith is a is a an icon in economics, and he was Harvard. Yeah, but that was years ago. But it set and, the template, you know. If we're well, if, if we're just recapitulating history. There's not a lot of originality going on right now in the culture if you look around. The only really imaginative things are happening <clears throat> basically on the space front. We're, we're, we're living on the legacy. Remember, the reason that Trump succeeded is he turned the 50s into the golden age of the last time America was America. Well, in fact, it's really ironic if you look at the United States after post-World War II – we were producing, if I remember correctly, 89% of all automobiles produced in the world were manufactured in America. Um, we dominated steel. We've not built a steel plant since World War II in America. Um, it's amazing how it turned around. In fact, um, it was in the 1970s for the first time that children could not expect to earn more than their parents for the first time in American history. Uh, and now here's another example of how this system works. Now, again, I'm not trying to criticize uh, the liberation of women and so forth. I want to put this in context. <laughs> the real reason they put women in the workforce, I think, is not to help out women. It was to uh, double the workforce. That's why the wages have dropped. The reason real wages have dropped since the 70s is because we doubled the workforce. Now, again, if you're a woman, you'd say, well, that was worth it because now I can get out of the house and have freedom and opportunity and independence. And I agree with them on that. When they make changes, always look through who really benefits. Is it really um, the typical American family with one wage earner in 1955? was earning about $3,000 a year, and they were paying $200 in income tax a year, and they could live a comfortable lifestyle. 
on that one income. I grew up again on the Ohio Michigan border, the padlands of southern Michigan, I used to call it. And there were all kinds of factories there. And there were high school men who never finished high school, I should say, dropped out as sophomores. And they were earning good incomes at Jeep, Ford, General Motors. They owned cottages. They owned boats. They had multiple cars. And no one else in the family had to work. And all that has disappeared, by and large. And again, is it intentional? Oh, is it, have we just self-destructed on our own? Um, and incidentally, when we get back to conspiracy theory, I think the reason I'm not trying to say anything in support of Trump here, but he wasn't playing the game. He, I think he got convinced he really was a leader and you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to do what you're told. And he got into office and he thought, well, I'm the boss. I know how to run things and I'm really going to run things. And the attacks on him were immediate and relentless. The, you know, allegations of Russian fixing the election and the media attacks, uh, reporters shouting at him and the ridicule of him in the press. I think it's because he actually thought he was going to try to run the country and they wouldn't let him. And we're going to go back to business as usual. Um, and uh, everybody's going to give a group hug and it's going to move on. Now, um, so again, I think the lesson from all of this is um, you can't fight the system. So try to game the system in your favor if you get an opportunity to join such as the freemasons do it and make business contacts it may help you someday and um, um, because it's again it's a rigged game out there and any advantage you can carve out for yourself is important and for the record i'm not in any i'm not in the freemasons myself and so forth i like to study things but I've never been a joiner. Hmm. Okay, so let's back up to the 30,000-foot question, which is how do secret societies originate and why are they secret? There's this kind of gestalt of the way things are, and most people don't vary much from the way things are, and those that do uh, usually don't have much influence because they, you know, there's, there's, there's a whole necessarily accumulation of various factors for a movement to take hold, become the modern idiom viral, and to change society. Um, so why are there secret societies and why are there so many? Well, I keep going back, and incidentally, in this country, in 1900, roughly 20% of all American males belonged to fraternal orders, which is quite stunning. Now, getting back to your question, it reminds me, there's a, there's a story, and I'm now plagiarizing the great religious historian Joseph Campbell, um, and um, there's a, he, he talked about this. There's a story that's widespread across, uh, it's found in um, South America, uh, Patagonia. It's found among the Aboriginal people, Australia. It's found in many different places. And it's the same story. It's, it could go back to the origin of human memory and the human race being passed down. And it's told among the men. And they often tell boys during initiation puberty rituals. Many tradi well, traditional cultures always mark adulthood 
is marked by puberty, and they go through a ritual to indicate this. Uh, bar mitzvah is a survival of that tradition in Judaism. Uh, they now do it for, for uh, girls as well. Originally, it was to initiate the boy into puberty. At any rate, the story is the boys would be told by the old men. First of all, they'd be sworn to secrecy. They would take the boy out in the wilderness and tell him, you must not speak this. And they would tell the boy, boys, that long ago, women controlled everything. They had the magic power. They could bring sickness and death through magic. And long, long ago, our ancestors, the men, conspired against them. And they murdered every woman past puberty. They murdered everyone who had gone through the puberty ritual, because that's when the women were told the magic. They were taught the rituals. The girls going through menstruation were taught the magical rituals. And the men would say, we murdered all the, all the women. We kept only the little girls alive. And then we now became their masters. They forgot the magic. And now men can control, which is really curious because whenever there's a revolution and a, a power is displaced by a new power, mm -hmm. the new power always oppresses the old power. And it's been, Campbell suggested this, that the reason women were so oppressed is because they had lost their power and displaced. You see it occur, it occurred, for example, when the communists took over in USSR they killed, imprisoned, or exiled all the rich people, the capitalists. Uh, in China, there were massacres of the revolution, which reminds me, Americans routinely refer to the American Revolution. It's not a revolution. All European historians will tell us that. They call it a Barons' Revolt because in a real revolution, the people that ruled before the revolution are dead, in prison, or in exile. And there's a new ruling class. But the American Revolution, all they did is just got rid of a distant nominal authority, the king. And then all the local leaders in, a, in the colonies now just took over. Uh, they were, and speaking of which, Ben Franklin, who actually was a runaway indentured servant, that's a temporary slave, he becomes rich. Well, he had the, he was printing the money. <laughs> Could be a, it could be a coincidence. And by the way, speaking of Franklin and secret societies, he has this curious tie-in with a really peculiar secret society in England, typically called the Hellfire Club by Sir Francis Dashwood. Right. And um, if you want to know how that one worked, there was, there was a really curious film. Someone told me about it. I never had watched it. I recently watched it. Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Watch it. Yes, and it really shows it shows a powerful elite committing sexual crimes, basically, and even murder for fun, in a sense. Well, the um, Hellfire Club in England, Sir Francis Dashwood was actually Lord Chancellor of England. He was wealthy Lord Chancellor of England. That's the equivalent of the Chief Justice Supreme Court. Uh, the Earl of Sandwich was a member. He was really wealthy and also really corrupt. He used to like to deflower virgins, uh, young girls, uh, just for the agony it caused. He took some joy in this. He was so addicted to gambling that he invented the sandwich. That's where the term comes from. He ordered a servant to bring him some meat between bread because he didn't want to leave the gambling table. And that, mm. became, that became the sandwich. That's actually a true story. 
Potter was a corrupt character. Uh, he was his father was the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he allegedly got really drunk and sodomized a cow in a pasture. He raped a cow. So this guy is really curious. Well, these are collective. Ben Franklin's attending meetings with these guys. Now, the official history always reads they were basically rich guys indulging in harmless jollifications, as one historian called it. They were basically partying with alcohol and women, but we have some evidence they were doing some various sinister rituals and who knows what else there. But here's the curious part. Uh, Franklin was a diplomat for America, and he was staying on Craven Street in London. And uh, in fact, I think it's, uh, you remember the year, I think it was 37 Craven Street. And years later, in the 1990s, because of London basically is a historical site, you need all kinds of permissions to be careful when you renovate buildings. And they were doing renovations on the building, the structure where Franklin lived in the 18th century, and they found a secret passage underneath the house with human skeletons. I Several remember children. that story. Yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting because right away, the official story was released. He must have been doing anatomical research. And then later they changed it to they discovered a surgeon lived there and he must have been doing anatomical research. Well, who dissects corpses and puts them under the house? I mean, that's John Wayne Gacy does that. Mm. So, uh, but again, shows if you're a member of the elite, I'm not trying to say we don't know what happened there, but they'll whitewash your story. Well, there was a doctor in Chicago named Holmes who had a hotel. He was a kind of a, you know, con man. And, yeah. and, and they found bones in his basement in the hotel. And he claimed that he was, uh, you know, buying bodies for medical research. So the story is not outrageous. I mean, the, the strictures on, you know, bodies and burials and all that now is certainly not what it was back when Franklin was, was alive. So again, as an historian, how do you assess the truth of all kinds of things that you have recounted this, this evening? In other words, there has to be some discriminator where in any science, you have a way of testing your information. Otherwise, you know, we can, as the White Queen, believe six impossible things before breakfast. Well, there was an ancient Greek during the Hellenistic period after Alexander the Great, a philosophical school called the Skeptics. Now, sadly, that hmm. word has entered our language. Oh, my God, has it fallen? But no, it's been, it's been corrupted, though. It totally. Yeah, today it tends to be used for someone who uh, colors outside the, thinks that anyone who colors outside the lines is somehow false, or especially in religious terms, they'll say, I'm a religious skeptic. But in fact, the original skeptics in Hellenistic Greece, it was a school that said that all knowledge is uncertain. And I frankly tend to Well, that's that. true, yes. Yes, and I'm talking at all. I'm talking, we don't know this universe is even made up of matter and energy. It's possible, as in Hindu thought, they call it non-dualist thought. This is all a, a dream. In some versions, it's the, we're living in the dream of a god. In other versions, we're all dreaming reality. Uh, that's actually used in Scientology, that Thetans um, created this universe with their thoughts, that it doesn't really exist. And um, 
So this notion um, that everything is uncertain. We, by the way, one one example I like to give in classes, because again, students will readily be skeptical about religious things, but not the 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 scientists of the new high priests. Nobody doubted the ancient Egyptian priests in antiquity, five thousand years ago, and that's how it is today. And the scientists have become the new high priests. Uh, and by the way, speaking of which, we history um, in the 1950s. They shaved 2,000 years, historians did, off the history of ancient Egypt. They used to think it started around 5,000 BC, and they shaved off 2,000 years and said now it's 3,100 BC. I mean, <laughs> I mean, can you do that? Well, at any rate, um, one example I like to give in my classes is essentially, and I'm trying to be satirical here, that modern science, that over a long, 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 long time, hydrogen turns into humans. Mm-hmm. And I'll look at me and I'll say, well, they're teaching there was this primal atom that exploded. It was plasma, then it cooled eventually into stars, and then stars somehow formed planets, and these planets somehow cooled, and somehow spontaneous life forms eventually emerged, single cell organisms. And then through natural selection, higher vertebrates eventually emerged, and multicellular organisms, and then over time, even humans emerged, even though, by the way, Wallace, um, who was the co-founder of uh, evolutionary theory, claimed that that we couldn't be descended from primitive ape-like creatures because it was too big of a jump. But at any rate, Darwin bought into that. At any rate, so I'll tell the class that this all happens on its own, that humans emerged all about all this on its own. When, in fact, when we look at the way the universe works, it's entropy. Things tend to decay, not develop. Uspensky, the Russian occultist, he had a great line. He said that um, to, to evolve requires uh, conscious effort. And he says that on its own, we just degenerate. Speaking of which, Darwin actually thought modern humans were degenerating. Because he said with civilization, this is kind of cruel, it's basically eugenics. But he said with civilization... Uh, where where people that would not have survived in earlier times are now surviving and reproducing or being coddled and that the human race is doomed. This ultimately led to his cousin Galton coining the term eugenics. And this also led to, there's a straight line to concentration camps and sterilization, all that, the horrors of Nazi Germany, saying that humans are degenerating, so we have to get rid of the people that are causing the degeneration. So... Uh, Again, the problems cannot, I think, be solved. Uh, speaking of which, while we're talking well, about well, wait, 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 wait. When you say they can't be solved, they can be solved from a different perspective, which is, do we, meaning the universe, is it a closed system or is it part of a hierarchy? And the, and the advances and the developments that are attributed to, to um, entropy are, in fact, because of the infusion of outside information slash energy from a other higher set of dimensions. That's, of course, in these technologies where the energy comes from, uh, you know, so-called free energy. I hate the term, but it's literally uh, demonstrable that you can create it now in technologies that, that tap into this torsion field of which we are, you know, immersed. So, you know, well, the, the, the way you get around the entropy problem is you open the system. 
Well, actually, I have to confess, I, I'm a pessimist here. Now, if if uh, 18th century is the first century in Western civilization that put the, the, the Eden in the future, not the past, all earlier cultures always act like there it was a golden age at one time that we've lost. And the 18th century developed faith in science and technology and said that all of our future problems would be solved through science. Now, here's what's curious. Often in films, they'll have a figure, well, they'll have an 18th century person brought to the present in a time machine, like Ben Franklin again. Mm -hmm. I can recall he was in a Bewitched episode, I remember as a child. He shows up in the uh, Samantha's uh, house, and he's amazed by all the developments. In fact, if we could bring a Thomas Jefferson to the present, his first words would probably be, this is all you've accomplished? They were convinced. (laughs) They were convinced that by some time in the 19th century, we would master death itself. We would have, we would conquer gravity. They were talking about anti-gravity in the 18th century. Well, hold it there because we're at the bottom of the hour, but I'll leave you with one thought. What if we were on a trend curve and something intervened to keep this from happening? My guest this morning is Dr. Mark Mirabello. We're talking about secret societies the control of society by a handful of faceless men. You know they have to be men. Anyway, uh, we'll go back and we'll find out the answer to the question, has history actually been averted? Has it been controlled? Are we literally living on a prison planet, as Alex Jones keeps saying? And there is evidence, unfortunately, to support that contention which we will get to when we return. You're on the other side of midnight. Don't touch that dial. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. 
Last half hour to go on the other side of midnight for this Sunday night, Monday morning. If you want to join the conversation, if you want to ask Dr. Mirabello a question, 917-889-8802. You know, Mark, you posed a really interesting question uh, just before the break. You said if, if, if Franklin could come back, he would look around and he'd say, is this all you've achieved? And that really indicates something which is buttressed now by real science, real engineering, and, and, and real numbers. Because if you look at trend curves from the 1930s and 40s in terms of transportation, in terms of transportation velocities, you know, we have, uh, you know, the typical, you know, walking and then you have uh, train or stagecoaches, then you have trains, then you have, you know, automobiles, then you have aircraft, and then you have faster aircraft, and then you have rockets. And you, you can plot all these velocity uh, changes due to technological development on curves. And what you find is that the curve that should have been asymptotic, meaning it goes straight up, it doesn't. We're still flying or at least some places in the world, are still flying 747s. Uh, we're still stuck with rockets, even though Musk has done amazing things by making them reusable and relanding for stages and slashing prices and all this. We're still doing the same thing that the Chinese did, you know, 5,000 years ago, squirting something out the back to move forward. And yet we know from the work of various uh, researchers and scientists and some colleagues of mine, like uh, Paula Violet, that there have been secret programs mastered by the U.S. government, particularly the Navy, since the 1920s with icons of research like T. Towns and Brown. We know how to create um, non-Newtonian impulsive forces in, uh, in space, in propulsion, we know how to, quote, get something for nothing. We know how to tap into a higher set of dimensions or a higher source of fields. So why can't you buy this technology at Walmart? The answer is someone does not want us to have it because to have it would dislocate. Um, these things are called disruptive technologies for a reason. These particular breakthroughs in science, which should have happened decades ago, have not been allowed to happen because, and I'm leaving the question open, why do you think? By the way, when you talked about progress, I should also mention, I remember seeing a political cartoon some years ago, and it shows an elderly grandfather with his grandson on his knee, and he said, you won't believe this, but when I was a boy, we could travel to from New York to Paris in two and a half hours, it was a plane called the Concorde. So, I mean, that's gone now. Mm-hmm. And um, now, by the way, a couple of points on all this stuff, and I want to make it clear. There's a theory. Now, you'll probably object to this because <laughs> you, well, you have the science. You have the, you have the science background. I try. There's a theory, there's a theory among historians that well, historically, uh, eras of great development tend to last about two and a half centuries, and that's it. And there was one, for example, during the Renaissance started. And there's a, there's a current idea. It was proposed, I think, by a French scholar who claimed that all development technology that really advances stopped 
in the 1960s. He said that everything that's happened since, we've simply improved on earlier discoveries, like the microchip called the transistor, for example. They've gotten better, but there's no brand new technology since the 60s. They had primitive computers already. Uh, it's just we've gotten a little bit miniaturized, a little bit better, a little bit faster, but nothing new. The cell phone is actually just a glamorized walkie-talkie um, with more cell towers. Now, another point I want to throw in, and before I, we run out of time, I wanted to work this in. Um, the hour is come, but not the man. Some of your audience may be walking down the street and see that on the wall. And that's from an alleged Internet secret society. And they'll post it at various places. And often secret societies will communicate. I'll get into the technology in a moment. But they'll communicate secretly. And it's like uh, uh, people giving speeches will make hand signals that are, for example, various emblems. Uh, there was that controversy of that man I just saw allegedly in Jeopardy giving a, a KKK or neo-Nazi sign while he was on the stage mm -hmm. uh, with the upside down OK symbol. Right. But they will do that. And also your audience, uh, sadly, people don't listen to shortwave radio anymore. I, used to, I still have shortwave and I love it. You can hear across the globe, various countries, and you can tune in and they change on frequencies. You'll hear typically a woman's voice reading numbers, most often in English, but not sometimes in Korean, Chinese, Russian, German. And we think the cover story is these are intelligence operatives communicating with agents in foreign countries. It's code. But it's also possible this is some kind of society communicating with members. Uh, you get a code book, let's say you use Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde, and 1324 would mean page 13, line two, word four. And that's the, you didn't get the message as they go down the list. Now back to your question, um, it's possible there there's, there've been rumors for years. It could be fabrication that there's a secret society essentially called the immortals. And they've discovered the key to our immortality that they don't die. Now we know humans seem to be designed to die. Bacteria endlessly replicate forever. Technically they can be killed, but they don't grow old and die. And they don't actually give birth. They simply have, fission. But when sex begins in reproduction, death occurs. And there's the so-called Hayflick limit. A cell can only multiply so many times, yet cancer cells can multiply indefinitely, which is curious. Well, if imagine if somebody discovered the secret to endless life, it would cause chaos on earth. Um, if everybody could live forever. Well, well, wait, wait. It would cause chaos for a period of time until the new society took root. Well, the, the argument is, again, you could disagree with this, but the theory, if this group does exist, they have the secret of immortality and they keep it secret. And that when some prominent people disappear or die prematurely, they're often actually being inducted into this group. This is just a really hardcore conspiracy. I'm not trying to say it's true. Mm -hmm. I could see your see, point. The, you could... the scientist part of me says, Okay, as an historian, you're, you, you seem to be living in this land of limbo where nothing can be proven. Aren't you intrigued enough, Mark, to want to try to prove or disprove some of these things? 
How do you test a model? Well, probably the corruption I've gotten from this is I teach, for example, a course on alternative religions and cults, and students will repeatedly ask me, what do you believe? And I say, I don't try to believe, I try to study and understand. Mm -hmm. I want to know what everybody thinks. But uh, over and over again, um, well, I mean, even again, not to pick on science, but (laughs) if you took a science astronomy course in 1900 in America, and you said there were other galaxies outside the Milky Way, they would flunk you. Um, and, uh, I'm, I have a feeling I could be wrong on this, but the current dark matter idea is simply, it's like the four humors and the ether theory and miasma theory. It's a bandaid. They couldn't Zwicky back in the 1930s said that the stars and Andromeda should be flying off into space. There's not enough matter to keep the galaxy together. And they've come up with this dark matter to just put a bandaid on the current theories. Yeah, it was actually, it was Vera Rubin. It was uh, not Zawicki. And and you're right. I, I, I tend to agree that the dark matter model is a, is a paucity of imagination because if you change gravity, if you abandon, as my old friend Tom Van Flanneren used to talk about, uh, Newtonian physics, meaning inverse square law goes on forever and gravity never stops. It just gets weaker and weaker on this particular predictable curve, if there's something different in space that limits gravity, the whole dark matter problem goes away because gravity is not what we think it is. And there's another opposing law or, or, or model formulated by, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the scientist, but there has been this contest between the dark matter folks and these other folks that think that it's the uh, change in the in the in the uh, formulation of gravity and the and the uh, evidence the, the the evidence that will tell us which is which we can net we cannot yet accumulate because we don't have the instrumentation see the problem mark is that science is not a body of evidence it's how you collect the evidence it's the process it's not what you think you know it's how you think what you think you know is true and that, of course, is, is kind of like a fundamental axiom. If you have a process that works and you religiously and vigorously apply it, ultimately, truth will come out. By the way, it's, notice that no scientist would ever even consider this. Maybe the reason we don't see the stars flying out into space is the Southern Baptists are right and the universe is only 6,000 years old. <laughs> uh, by the way, it reminds me, uh, uh, Philip Ghost. I think you said that firmly with your tongue in your cheek, right? Well, it's possible. No, no it's I'm, not. No, yes, it's it no, no. Philip, it's not. Philip Ghost, Philip Ghost in the 19th century it, it argued. I'm not a fundamentalist here. I'll make it very clear. But they're just as valid as the science people are because both can be, shall we say, questioned. Philip Ghost argued that when God, he was a Christian, made the universe, he made a going concern. He made the earth look old. He put the rivers, the canyons, and so forth. He said he, he used the example of Adam appeared to be a 30-year-old man a minute after he was created. And you would see the wrinkles, you'd see the fingerprints, you'd see the navel, even though he was never born of a woman. So Ghost then argued in the book called Omphalos, it's possible that the entire universe was actually made a moment ago. 
In fact, the universe may have come into existence roughly when this show started and our memories were planted. <laughs> uh, this, this gets into Philip Dick fiction. Remember in Blade Runner, um, false memories are planted in mm-hmm. the androids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's possible that, and again, this, that uh, I've always been intrigued by the notion, Bohr, Hay in South America, Philip Dick's fiction, that Philip Dick said it's possible that the entire universe is a hallucination and the evidence to prove this is false, that he was being ironic there. But uh, we can't be certain of anything. And the scientists will automatically dismiss certain things. They'll just say, this is a given. We know the universe is billions of years old. And they keep adjusting the age. Remember, at one time, the geologist had the Earth older than the Yeah, but again, you know, you're, 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 you're confusing the forest and the trees because it's not what we think we know. It's the process of how we eliminate error, arrive at more and more of an approximation of truth. And I'm not saying they're absolutes, but I'm saying we can get closer, and we have gotten closer. And how do you know? Because you can do cross-checks. Well, see, I would go back to my original point when we started the program, that in every field there are myths, and they help us orient ourselves in the universe. Mm-hmm. So if scientists want to believe these myths, and economists and political scientists and historians, they, they, they're free to do it because it gives them a position in the universe. We have never found even the most primitive culture. And we have found cultures like in Tasmania, they did not know how to start fire. They had never seen water boil. They didn't know the bow and arrow. They couldn't start fires. Yet they had theories of where the universe, how it got here and where it's going. It's an innate human need. To... Yeah, but did they have a process for finding out? Well, again, frankly, our scientific process is just a more elaborate uh, uh, system. But even medieval academic scholasticism had a process with Aristotelian logic, but it did make it valid. So, again, I'm not trying to say we should stop science or any field, but I, my own personal opinion is um, we are – well, let me – we're running out of time, so I'll close with this. The Hindus have a wonderful story of the frog at the bottom of a well, and he looks up, and he sees the slimy walls, but then he sees the, the sky, circle of sky, and he's convinced that's the entire universe. And um, – we could be frogs at the bottom of a well, and we think we're looking out into the vastness of space. Perhaps we're just really, really small, and it, it's we don't know. We don't know where we are, or where we're going, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try but to see, work on it. That's why it comes down to process. How do you know what you know, or what you think you know? And I would say I'm an old-fashioned skeptic. I'm not certain of anything. But I still continue the quest because knowledge itself is interesting. Well, if you, wanna... if, if, if you philosophically make the decision, which I did a long time ago, that's why I formulated one of Hoagland's first laws, all science is approximate. But it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's on the way to a better approximation. And the test is, does it work? You know, well, Mu- by the way, Musk spacecraft it... came back successfully yesterday morning because the process for developing that spacecraft worked. The proof is those guys and women are alive tonight. They didn't die. So there are ways to test your process against the ultimate reality, which is, does it work? 
Oh, and by the way, uh, I'll make a prediction here. Uh, space tourism will go the Hindenburg and Concorde route. All they need is one catastrophic disaster, and it'll kill the airship and also the supersonic uh, flight. Uh, I'll make that prediction. It's a bad idea. To well, but, 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 but then why do we have aircraft? Why do we have airlines? Why do we have Pan Am? Because it doesn't exist, but American Airlines does. In other words, well, we've had how many airlines crash and we still fly airplanes? We have well, how many cars crash and we still drive cars? By the way, two-thirds of the passengers on the Hindenburg survived. Uh, and the Concorde disaster was caused by a piece of metal on the highway. All I'm trying to say is strapping people to a rocket is a really dangerous way to go. And See, they're charging hundreds of thousands of dollars, and perhaps it'll get better over the years, but I have a feeling what's going to happen is they'll have one disaster, someone will pay a quarter of a million dollars to go up into uh, low-level uh, space, and it'll blow up, and then it'll kill the whole thing. It's not a good idea, in my opinion, to but be taking you, you, Mark, you've ignored the question. Why do we fly airliners? Do you know how many people have died in airline crashes since airplanes were invented? Oh, yes. Yes. Um, and I think we have gotten better with that. And but technology is different from theoretical science. No, but you're not uh, answering the question. Why do we still have airliners with all the crashes and all the deaths? Well, there aren't that many deaths compared to how many fly. And in terms of space tourism, there won't be that many deaths compared to how many go. So why do you think one is different than the other? Well, I could be wrong, but I can fly for $50 to Florida, but the ones going into space will pay a couple hundred thousand. And when you kill rich people, they make noise. Remember I said about Bernie Madoff, his mistake was he stole money from the rich. Mm -hmm. But we'll see. I could be, again, I'm saying <laughs> I could be wrong on all of these points that made tonight. I could bet I just, you a dinner on this one. Okay. Anyway. Well, way, um, look, we, we, we have about 10 minutes left. I have some very important questions. What got me into the whole secret society thing was when I found that NASA, this supposedly extraordinarily scientific and rigorously engineering agency, was running its missions by secret numbers. And then some years later, I discovered, oh, my God, these secret numbers are actually part of a secret suppressed physics. So then my question was, do the NASA folks running the missions by the secret numbers, like, for instance, um, the other uh, morning they were flying this little helicopter on Mars for the first time. Do you know when they launched it? Literally left the ground, Eastern Daylight Time? 3-33-33. Remember, they launched Apollo 13 on all kinds of 13. Exactly, exactly. So, central question. How, what role does magic, defined in my mind by Arthur C. Clarke, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic? How much does magic play a role in societies all over the world? Well, actually, it, I, there are several points that are set of fire by this. First of all, I should mention that fundamentally the notion that nature is mathematical comes from secret societies. The Pythagoreans thought that. And it's also found in the Kabbalah. And that's a magical thought process. The notion that, um, in fact, Galileo was disturbed by the fact that in mathematics, one plus one always equals two, but in real life, a glass of water and a glass of salt equals one glass of salt water. 
but we insist today, modern physics insists that nature is mathematical. You can read Aristotle's physics. There's no math in there at all. So that's a modern notion derived yeah, and from... And we no Frank longer Lee. believe in Aristotle, right? And we do believe in Pythagoras. Well, See, we still believe in... The reason but, the but, universe but, is mathematical is because it's about resonance. Resonances are mathematics. Music is mathematical. The universe, as we know it, and higher dimensional physics is resonant wave-like phenomenon. So that's why mathematics runs the world. Well, back to your original point on magic and secret societies. Often, when, this, when the societies are running today, they're, they degenerated. They often don't even know what they're doing. We, ah. see, we see the magical rituals. I mentioned before that in Freemasonic rituals, they must be memorized. A magical ceremony must be uttered, not read. Even in ancient Egypt, you could not read the spells. You had to memorize them and utter them. The Hindu Vedas, which have mantras, you have to memorize them and say them from memory. Um, also, I mentioned earlier, uh, the, in Skull and Bones, they can, at their initiation, they can wear no metal at the initiation. This also happens in the Freemasons. In the Bible, no metal could be used at the construction of the Temple of Solomon. The prohibition, Sir James Fraser said that iron is obnoxious to the gods. And we see the notion everywhere that metal somehow um, contaminates a magical ritual. Mm -hmm. uh, although we'll see in witchcraft today, they're using the atom, which is a knife. Uh, Gerald Gardner introduced it into witchcraft rituals in the 1950s. So often uh, the Odin Brotherhood that I research uses it. So you have heresies within the rituals that kind of develop. Well, there's a theory among historians, this goes back to the 19th century, that rituals outlive beliefs. People will continue rituals when they forgot the reasons for them. And then after time passes, they invent a rationalization. For example, when a husband uh, groom carries the bride over the threshold, that goes back to an ancient magical taboo. The first, this is Rome and Greece, the first person to step over the threshold in a marriage with his right foot dominates the marriage. But they don't know that today. The bride and groom will be doing this ceremony, and they'll think it, it has some sort of romantic symbolism. The bride wears a veil in the ceremony. That's to protect her from evil eye. The evil eye is not a wandering eye like a lot of people think today. It's when you look at someone with jealousy or envy. And at a bridal ceremony, there will be someone there. Every, most people will be saying, isn't the bride beautiful? She looks so wonderful. But there will be someone there saying, that slut stole Johnny from me. <laughs> and so the bride wears the veil to protect herself. The train that she has is to, for most of human Christian history, the churches had dirt floors. And she'd leave footprints. And a, a sorcerer or a witch could come later, hammer a, a nail stolen from a coffin into the footprint, and it would do negative magic to her. So they wore a train to erase the footprints. The reason, mm. people make, the reason people make their beds in the morning is because that's sympathetic magic. They used to have pallets with straw, and it'd leave your imprint of your body on the pallet. And someone could work, just like a voodoo doll, magic on your image. 
That's called sympathetic magic. If two things resemble one another in shape or form, there's a magical connection. A second rule of magic is called contagious magic. If two things are connected, they remain connected forever. That's why traditional people would be horrified by heart transplants. If that heart is still going to have a connection to the dead person. Mm. And they would be horrified by this or the kidney uh, that's been transplanted. But again, in our modern culture, if you tell a doctor, I'm having really strange dreams since that heart transplant, he'll just dismiss it. It's all in your head. It's a hallucination. But a person who believes in magic would think he's actually having flashbacks from the original owner of that heart. So again, um, and by the way, one final point is I know we're running out of time is in magic, they're interested in the unusual and they ignore the commonplace. In science, they look for the usual and ignore the anomalous. This is why people have difficulty believing there's a, there's a face on Mars. It's too bizarre and anomalous. They want to just see hills and mountains and canyons and plains, not anything unusual. But the mm, magical and see there, I would give you an argument because it's not the people that don't want to see it. It's the establishment. It's whoever runs NASA. It's whoever runs the world. Well, it's the high priesthood, if you will. Yeah, yeah. And Ordinary way, people why... are open to an awful lot of things, and they look to authority figures because they don't have time to figure it out themselves. They look to authority figures to tell them the truth. And if authority is not telling you the truth, this huge controversy now over what is the real atmosphere of Mars, the ordinary person has no means of figuring it out. They have to trust someone to tell them the truth. Well, this takes us back to the sheep on the farm. And again, the ordinary people, there's a certain percentage of people that don't even know the name of the president. And only 2% of Americans read books every year. I mean, it's, it's shocking, the level of illiteracy and uh, they'll all know who the latest uh, rock stars are and hip hop artists, but they won't know basic history. I'll get college students have no idea when the civil war was when they enter college. It's, mm -hmm. it's unbelievable. Hey, Mark, I'm sorry. We are running out of time. I want to, I want to thank you. This has been a most enlightening thing. We probably should do this again when there's a little more data to discuss. My guest this morning has been Dr. Mark Mirabello We've been discussing secret societies and a question which, of course, has not been answered. Are there a group of faceless individuals that really run the world? To be continued. Well, next week, of course, Saturday, we're going to do more on Mars and what is being discovered and suppressed by NASA on the planet Mars. And Sunday, well, that's a secret. So until next week... Same time, same bad channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.